truth is, no one is born extraordinary, but everyone has extraordinary inside of them. It just has to be found. Welcome back to Finding Extraordinary. I am your host, Seth Markson. Each and every episode will deliver an exciting guest or message that will expand your mind and provide insight that will help unlock the secrets to finding your extraordinary. Thank you for spending some time with me. Let's get it started. My next guest of the podcast is Tyler Van Zant. He's one of my great friends. He's a world-class human being, and only in his 30s, he is already the Senior Vice President of Harbor Funds Distributors. Among this, he has recently been selected as a 2021 honoree of his alma mater, Western Michigan University's Haworth College of Business's The 30 Class, which recognizes emerging business leaders who are providing thought leadership and innovative perspectives in the business world. You may also recognize Tyler as being the younger brother of Mike Van Zandt. Mike Van Zandt went missing five years ago, and the story of his disappearance has been the top trending story on Twitter and many other social platforms. Now, many news agencies have covered this throughout the nation, and this is why it's such a big deal. Mike has still never been found. Tyler is still searching for him, and we wanted to bring awareness to this situation and many others like it because 600,000 people go missing every year, and 10% of those people are never found. We dive right into this story right in the beginning of the podcast, so make sure you listen to this. And after that, we talk about so many other things that have made Tyler who he is to be one of the most humble people I know personally and one of the highest achievers. This is certainly a podcast you want to dive into and listen to the whole thing because Tyler has so much wisdom, as you'll hear throughout the entire podcast. Without any further ado, let's jump right into it. Here we go. Tyler Van Zant, welcome to the Finding Extraordinary podcast. It's about time I finally got you onto the podcast. For those of you who don't know, I've moved out to Southern California over five years ago or so, and I've met some pretty amazing people, and Tyler is certainly one of them. But more importantly, Tyler has become one of my best friends out here, and we always have great conversations, and I can't think... More highly of Tyler, I think he's just an extraordinary person, and you're going to find out why he's that way today. But, you know, this is a more professional platform to have our conversation, and I can't be more excited to have you on the show. Well, I'm with you, man. I have an attitude of gratitude to be here. It uh, it doesn't quite beat the golf course, but we'll try to make <laughs> make it close. And there's nothing that beats the golf course, to be honest. Yeah, but uh, you know, obviously, appreciate you being on here and, and your words about our friendship. Uh, not being from California myself, it it is hard to find friends at our old age, and yeah. so I'm happy to have found one in you and uh, and uh, your friends group as well. Yeah, thanks. And it's not old age; it's our age of wisdom. Wisdom. Yes. I'm feeling so wise. Yeah, with uh, whiskey, whiskey in hand, and whiskey and wisdom. In hand. And, well, cheers, man. Cheers. Let's uh, let's uh, have a good one. Well, Tyler, the question that you're most excited for who are you what do you do well from those on the outside um i think most would know me as the little brother of michael van zant uh who 
tragically disappeared in Hermosa Beach back in March of 2016. So uh, celebrating in some ways, um, you know, some sadness here today of five years. Um, And he is the reason that I'm in California um, and living down the block from you in uh, Manhattan Beach because we're still, you know, we're still searching from him. Um, But you know, we'll certainly dive into that, I'm sure, later, and I hope to be able to share some of his story. Uh, but uh, as I often say, I don't like to define myself by that tragedy. Um, myself and the rest of my family are much more than that. So who I am? Um, well, I'm a, I'm a, a uh, graduate of Western Michigan University. I was the first university graduate in, in my family. I played uh, Division One football there. I walked onto the football team and, and completely humbled myself <laughs> as an athlete uh, yourself. Uh, you know all about that. Um, you know, I had a great great college time there, and, and it was recently named or will be recently named in in, in the next coming week um, as um, one of Western Michigan's the thirty class of twenty twenty one, which is. 30 business people or current uh, students that are changing the business world or their communities. Um, And so I'm really, really proud of that accomplishment, uh, given that Western Michigan is a large school and uh, was happy to receive that news um, because there's a lot of great people doing great things. Um, I spent a lot of time studying for the notoriously difficult CFA exam, which is why I'm having my first glass of whiskey in, in probably three months. <laughs> um, and, um, you know, I'm an amateur photographer. I'm an investor. I love to read. I'm curious, you know, all of those different things. Um, but I'm most humbled to be on your podcast today. And, and I've had the opportunity to listen to a number of, of the podcasts that you've done uh, with the talented group of people that, that you surround yourself with. And it got me thinking of the word extraordinary. And I'm sure you've done this exercise having named it, but I thought about the root word of extraordinary. It's Latin. Um, and it means uh, outside the normal course of events. And I think about a lot of the things that have happened in my life certainly fit the bill. Yeah. And as you take the words extra and ordinary, there's a lot of things about my life that are pretty plain and ordinary like everyone else. And so I look forward to sort of getting uh, into that a little bit and away from just the tip of the iceberg and get underneath the surface a bit. Yeah, I'm looking forward to that as well. And most importantly, you know, I'm excited to hear from you things that I, I haven't before because obviously, you know, we've had amazing conversations off the podcast and I feel like, you know, you're one of my, my good friends out here and I I feel like I know a lot about you, but I'm excited to really dive deep here and, and find out really what's, what has made Tyler Van Zandt who he hit, who he is and what pushed you to accomplish what you have already and, you know, make you the person what makes you the person to strive for the things that you that you do so i think we just kind of dive right into it what do you think i'm with it and i probably didn't describe what the the what it is that i do part uh just you know for context so first off i I would and you'll probably uh learn this throughout the podcast and you already know this personally seth is i'm a numbers guy um, in more ways than one. I'm an analytical mind, but I work in the investment industry. Um, so I'm currently 
a senior vice president and regional investment consultant for a mid-sized asset manager based out of Chicago. Um, and I built my career at a much larger firm, T. Rowe Price, uh, where I was responsible for our West Coast relationships. Um, so what that really means is, in the, in the industry construct, is it means I'm a wholesaler. And how I could compare that, or what I would compare that to, um, is like medical sales, but where you're part economist, part salesperson, part service, um, in, in, and of course, part relationship management. And so I'm handling relationships with the biggest financial firms on the West Coast. And uh, at night, I lead the build out of what we're hoping to be is a, is a world-class um, you know, new age distribution and sales system. And that's you know, what the, the honor through Western Michigan is largely built about what we're trying to do and innovate on from a pro, um, professional standpoint. Absolutely love it. It's hard work. It's challenging. Um, and, and uh, you know, I can't, can't say enough about how, um, how good it feels to be involved in something that I actually enjoy. So that's the, what of, of what I do, but I'd, I'd love to unpack and, and figure out maybe how got me to the, how, how I ended up getting to that point. And that's why I'm here. We're, <laughs> we're going to dive pretty it. deep. Yeah. So through your life, you were saying that you've had challenges and you have had ordinary experiences like everyone else, but there have been experiences that have been outside the norm for you. And going through those, thinking through those, developing through those, that has led you to being here today and being someone who is changing the investment landscape and the financial landscape. Where do you think that started for you? Like, what made you want to push the limits? Yeah, so I, I think back to, if I think back to the very beginning, so I'm one of four boys. Um, so I grew up in a very competitive household, and that's always uh, a good driver of uh, of potential success is, is basically just wanting to win. And so in a world where there's only so much food on the table, um, yeah, I'm trying to win that last morsel of food. <laughs> um, and, and so we grew up in, in, uh, a small town in Pleasant Lake, Michigan. Um, I had two older brothers, one younger brother, and my mother had my, uh, eldest brother, Mike, um, when she was very young, like 17, 18 years old. And it's, I would say, um, less normal now, but back then, as we all know, you know, people were having children much earlier. Mm -hmm. Um, and she ended up having a really rough marriage. They, you know, she had Michael, they moved down in Florida. He ended up, they ended up moving back uh, to Michigan where she met my father. And the one, you know, key, key driver of, of, I think who, why I am who I am is really growing up without a father. And, and the story behind that is bizarre. <laughs> Some would say extraordinary. Um, but ultimately, um, what happened was, is when my mother found out she was pregnant, my father left her. And all throughout my childhood, I did not see him. Um, I had a, a, another stepdad who passed away tragically at, uh, in his early 40s from a, from a heart attack. Uh, who, who raised me for part of the time and then my current stepdad now. And so this, you know, this whole time you have this side of you that you don't even know who or what this person is. And so when I was 14 years old, I came home from school one day and I decided to call that person that I had never met. You know, I finally 
built up the courage. I remember the phone number. <laughs> I remember it like it was yesterday. And I called and I said, I want to talk to my dad. Um, and it was somebody I've never talked to before. Well, what ensued was not good. Um, my dad or, or, uh, sperm donor, as my mother likes to call him, um, he, um, stopped sending her, um, child support checks and they were all happening underneath the table. And so we went through a DNA test and, um, my, uh, my father who works in the court system, um, in our, in our local town, uh, we tried to get the case moved out of our hometown because we thought there was some conflicts of interest. Now, uh, we weren't successful in that and the blood test came back inconclusive. Um, and we tried to send it to some, some experts and, and ultimately they determined that it was close enough, uh, that it had to be a family member of his, but it, it, there was uh, an opinion that it may be doctored, but ultimately it came back as inconclusive. Wow. And so we have no proof that he is or is not my dad to this day. Um, which was, which was a pretty hard moment. We'd like to have pursued it further. I had the opportunity to do that when I turned 18, I chose not to, uh, but I would say not having a male influence in my life was a big driver. Uh, I would have said at the time it felt like a negative, uh, sitting here today, it, it feels uh, like a positive. Now my mother, you know, now here with two children <laughs> and trying to make it through life, um, you know, she had a hard time. I mean, she, we, she worked all sorts of jobs. We, I helped her clean houses throughout middle school and high school. She worked at gas stations. Um, she, uh, you know, she was working her towel off to try to provide for us. Um, and then, you know, ultimately, uh, she, you know, she ended up running into further struggles. She got, um, uh, cervical cancer and, my uh, stepfather got laid off. He was a crankshaft engineer. We were in Michigan. It was prior to the the great financial crisis where Michigan was having arguably a depression at the time and certainly in the auto industry. And so there was this confluence of events where it was just negative, negative, negative everywhere. And, and uh, you know, we it was a really tough time for our family. We got food delivered by the church. Um, and my mom uh, developed a pr- pretty bad drinking habit. And it was something that, that, that has actually been a big part of our family. My uncle, uh, passed away who I knew really well from, from, um, alcoholism, leaving three, three boys behind my cousins who were all really about the same age as me and my brothers. And so this is not, we're not stranger to this, uh, you know, this demon in our family. And so my mom, uh, you know, her poor soul has been through a lot mm-hmm. and she had anxiety and, you know, her only way that she could go to sleep and to not have panic attacks was, was to deal with, with the drinking. And so throughout high school, as you can imagine, you know, if you hear stories of addiction and, and, and the impacts of families, of course, they're real. That I would say is the second biggest driver of kind of who I am today. You know, not having this father figure, you know, having a mother who was doing her best to provide, but ultimately it was having her own struggles and, you know, having to grow up really early. <laughs> so right. at 14, I got my first job and, and I've been working ever since. Um, you know, the story has a happy, happy ending, but, you know, in the early, early days of my childhood, it, it was a bit of a struggle. And then, you know, if we shift, shift gears into high school, um, it got 
pretty bad between my mom and I, and I, I chose to, to kind of leave in between my sophomore, junior, junior year. And so I ended up, um, you know, staying with friends and, and, um, periodically staying back at home if I was in the neighborhood, but I really was sort of like separated myself from that situation. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think back to those high school days and I'm, you know, I'm at my friend's house and I'm like, man, they all have some good food in the in the pantry. <laughs> they got blue Gatorades in the fridge. You know, their moms are cooking biscuits and gravy. Uh, it was always about the food for me. But like, you know, part of it was, you know, I had these friends and this amazing network of people that helped me out, the coaches and and these other male figures. And um, and then along came along this guy. His name was uh, Ron, and Ron was going through a divorce and. Uh, I went to school with his son, Nick, and I was over at Ron's house, and, and we were just kind of shooting the shit about our lives, and, and we started to actually connect and have just a really dis- good discussion, and I would spend more and more time over there over the you know the course of the next, call it my junior and senior year, and Ron really stepped in as, you know, as a um, an anchor in my life when I really needed it, and, and so through the power of the community, um, you know, and I was able to, you know, it, it takes, it takes a village to raise somebody. And so I, I, you know, I was part of that village and, um, you know, we had some, uh, really tough times at home, but ultimately, you know, we, we ended up in a space where I got to college and, um, you know, I can kind of dive into that, but that's sort of the backdrop of, of, of two really important things, which are, you know, growing up without a father and kind of dealing with a family, uh, you know, that had, had some, um, alcoholism that, that's more pertinent. What did it make you feel like between your sophomore and junior year when you were living with your friends? What was running through your mind besides, Hey, they've got great food here. <laughs> well, it's obviously a bit of an embarrassment. Um, but it, you know, I shared a bed with uh, one of my best friends, Dietrich. It was a queen size bed, you know, two, two big high school guys sleeping in the same bed. Um, I remember coming in one day, um, you know, soon after I left and I had a laundry basket in the back of my car and all the stuff, um, you know, packed inside of it. I still have that laundry basket today, by the way, that's uh, my longest running possession. Wow. <laughs> um, and, you know, having to cry in front of my peers and tell the story. And, and, and so what it, what it taught me, um, up front was th- it's okay to be vulnerable like people may judge you um but it, that's actually okay it's okay to be yourself and and what i found is that my friendships deepened because of that in a way they probably never could have um and so and, and part of it was i i really wanted to rectify things with my family and I, I really wanted it to work but i knew that it had to be you know that was it was finally reached a point where i knew it had to be my mom that did that and she was not abusive. My mom's a, a really caring, caring person. She was not, um, you know, she was just dealing with her own demons. And, and it wasn't in a way that she treated me poorly, but it was a way that in the evenings she would drink. And it was it was really hard to, um, you know, navigate that. And so I left the situation. So part of it was guilt, guilt for leaving, you know, my family. Um, part of it was being scared, you know, and then part of it was like uh, just a survival mode. Yeah, I got to do what you got to do to to kind of survive. Yeah. 
I mean, I, I can't even begin to comprehend what that might have been like in that such a u- unique situation. But I'd imagine that there's someone listening that, that you know, that's bringing up some, something for them that they can relate to and, you know, a time where they they struggled and they had no choice but to be vulnerable because what else are you going to do? Yeah. You know, that's that's all you have, you know, at that moment in time. Now, now I'm thinking, you know, as someone who has siblings, I could always go to my older brother and or talk to my younger sister, but I have that certain relationship with them. What role did they play, you know, for you at this age? Yeah, I mean, they were... Uh, they were the they were the best. So my two older brothers are a bit older than me. Um, I don't know the exact dates, five six years, and and so if you think, you know, I'm in high school, they they're gone, right? And so they, we were we were homies hanging out, or at least I thought I was. I was wearing their clothes. My mom would would tell you that you know I got grounded one time for um, you know she came to school and 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 found a whole locker full of my brothers clothes because i wanted to be my brothers that's too funny um and then my you know mike um uh, you know my my, um my brother he ended up uh going into the military and he was like to me a real life gi joe but it crushed me i mean i had i cried you know to drop him off uh we went and saw his basic training graduation in, in texas and i just um you know i after he left it it was a big void i was the and i wasn't the man in the house we had a stepdad um keith and he just he grew up he was one of six boys in wisconsin growing up on a farm and so he had this old school mentality of you know take your shoes off at the door take your hat off like you know don't put your feet on the table like just just very disciplinarian and that sort um but a very very hard worker and so you know, uh, he was certainly the man of the house. There's no arguing that. Uh, but that 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 bond that you speak of, and in, in going through these, you know, trials and tribulations um, of not just you know what my mom was going through, but there there was all sorts of other things that had gone on. It, it is nice to lean on you know your big big brothers for support. Um, through the latter part of you know middle school into high school, I spent a lot of time uh, at my stepbrother Clint's house, um, who is an him and him and his wife and my niece are just a tremendous blessing. They've, uh, those two have been married since, since high school and just a good, um, a good example of, of, um, you know, high school lovers that have their one child and, 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 you know, I'm just so proud of what they've been able to put together, but I spent a lot of time over there, but it's not the same as, as being in person. And so, there was a lot of um there was a gap there for a while before I was able to really reconnect with my my brother Michael. He's busy overseas. He's in Japan. He's getting married. Right. He's having yeah. a children abroad and and so like, you know, the problems at har- home aren't as present or omnipresent in his mind as they would have been if, you know, he was still behind the, uh behind the front door. Right. Um so again, it's leaning on the rest of the community. Uh, for that that support and then and and to be able to you know kind of bring that confidence within yourself and part of being able to do that uh, was through sports and part of it was through employment 
And because that gets you the opportunity to get out of the house and be involved in something where you're part of a team, you get, um, you get judged based upon your performance. And that's the sort of, um, the, the drive that I needed uh, was was built out of out of sports where I knew that if I did a good job on the field or on the court, I'd get validation. That validation would make me feel good. Mm-hmm. And so I would drive and strive for that validation at all times. Um, and so sports was a big driver there as it was, you know, my first couple jobs. I worked at a golf course. I did construction. I ran my own power washing business. Um and then I ended up uh, my favorite job of all time, which is working at a movie theater. Nice. And so, at what age are you are you running your power washing business, and are you working at the movie theater? So the movie theater was my last um, year or year and a half of high school. Um, the summer going into college, I was working construction. That was one of the most formative things I've ever done in my life. <laughs> I realized that I don't ever want to do construction again. And no. Um, you know, no, uh, not saying anything that, that, that there's anything wrong with doing no, no, it's just hard work as everyone knows. And, and so I was building storage units in the middle of the summer and they're, it, you know, it was just, I've learned so much from that group of guys. Uh, they, funny story, I, I take off to college and they, they send me a to-go box, uh, to take with me to college. And it's, it's uh nudie magazines, liquor, <laughs> <laughs> So chasers and they're like, we never want to see you again. You know, that was basically <laughs> the, basically the message. Um, and then, yeah, the power washing thing, um, you know, I was able to work in, in conjunction with, with my mom's house cleaning business and, and, and she would, you know, offer that up to us. Um, and then my grandmother who we haven't talked about, just a massive, massive mentor for me. Um, and, and so she would go out there and solicit business as well. That's awesome. Yeah, there's, I feel like there's something that I can relate to here in this story, and it's that Midwest, Midwestness about yourself. Obviously, from Michigan, um, and I've got family lineage that that goes back to uh, to Michigan as well. And there's something about family, and especially like those Midwest folks who just want to help you and support you in whatever business that you're doing. I remember like selling books for, I I think it was called Scholastic. Oh yeah. And like all that stuff. And of course, as soon as that, as that started, first people I'd call are like my aunt, my uncle, and they'd be like, Oh yeah, it's your book fair. Don't worry about it. We'll we'll take five. Sign me up for 20. (laughs) Yeah. And it's like, what books do you want? They're like, I don't care. We'll, we'll do it. So, you know, uh, yeah, I feel like, like I know your grandma. A yeah. little bit. Oh my God, she's she's great, and and give a little background on my my, my grandparents. Um, so my gr- grandmother was um, uh, a, really a business leader throughout our our county, Jackson County, uh, but she was one of the higher up managers at Manpower, which is an employment agency. And my uh, grandfather, um, one of them, was a CPA, and and so th- to me, they were the beacon of success. They had this lake house. Um, you know, we would all gather there at holidays. We would gather there any time that they'd let us over. And my, my grandma was really like the glue that held the family together. She held people accountable when anyone was in a bind, like she would be, Oh, here's, you know, here's a hundred bucks to help out. I'm going to go buy you groceries. I'm going to, she did all this stuff kind of behind my, <laughs> behind my grandpa's back. 
because she had the means to do it. And, and so I try to emulate some of that, you know, here, given the fact that I have some means, I try to help out and, and, and not really make it a thing. Um, because my grandmother instilled that in me. She's, she just was a fantastic person. She passed away, um, in, I think it was 2014 or 15 on 4th of July from cancer. Wow. And, uh, you know, uh, it was somebody that I'm a big believer in, in the Seth and, and I keep a huge network. And part of the reason I do that is because, or the way that I'm able to do that is when I'm in the car, I'm always on the phone. And so, if, you know, I'm always rotating through all my friends and family and making sure I'm constantly, you know, in touch with somebody. And so every Thursday I would talk to my grandmother, every Monday I would talk to my mother, I would talk to Ron once a week and, and just, you know, love those conversations with her, but to hear her, you know, her voice throughout that period that she had cancer, but then not to be able to see her. And then when I finally did to watch her body have have broken down and go from, you know, really active person that was out gardening all the time, boating to, you know, just the the shell of herself. I didn't really get a chance to to actually see it. I didn't live there at the time where she passed. And and so uh, that was just a really, you know, heartbreaking thing. But I can't say enough about, you know, how much of an impact my my grandparents had around really um, shaping what success looked like to me. That's amazing. That's, 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 I don't want to just say a story, but that's like a a wonderful life experience that you were able to, to have. And it's almost like, thank heavens that was part of your life. Yeah. You know, with everything else that was going on. So, I mean, she was, you know, she was a blessing. Um, and before she passed, she made us all these photo books, you know, so all the cousins would have all of our childhood pictures put together nicely and all my newspaper articles from high school when I'm, you know, playing sports. And it was just such a, like every time I look at that thing and I'm like, wow, she put in so much effort into this and it just kind of embodies, you know, who she is. And, and she's just, she's a helper. And my mom's very much that way too. They're out to really just, just help people out without any regard to, um, you know, the effort that's involved or, or whatnot, they'll drop on a dime and, and help people out. And so I, I you know, again, I try to keep, that's something I try to keep in, 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 you know, alive uh, through my actions as well. That's awesome. It truly is incredible. And I, I feel like, you know, I've been I, I hanging out with you, getting to know you. That has translated into into who you are, and in in basic experiences, just you know that in encounters that I've had with you, you know, like that definitely shows. So just want to acknowledge that. Well, thank you. Yeah, yeah. no, I mean, it, I feel like I owe the world an immense amount of debt, um, you know, from the people that have stepped up and helped me um, in, in many different respects. And, and, you know, obviously in some respects, you know, through the passing away of family members or any challenges I had at home or through sports school, but then, you know, obviously, you know, as, as we transition later in the call to, you know, my brother, you know, I just owe people so, so much. And, you know, so anything I can do to help out, you know, I try to be there. And sometimes, uh, <laughs> I get a call right before I came over here. I'm trying to you know, prep a friend for a job interview. And I realized, oh, crap, I'm so sorry. I had to cancel on you. You know, I have, have a, another commitment. But I have things going like that all the time. Or if a friend, 
you know, a friend is, you know, doesn't have the money to come hang out with the rest of us and we're doing a March Madness trip. Don't worry, man, I got you. You know, mm-hmm. I, you know, we don't have to tell anyone. There's no shame involved. I, I enjoy your company. Like those are the sort of things. Yeah. Um, hey, you don't have a suit for this funeral. Don't worry, I got you. And it's not just about money. It's about time. It's about, hey, do you need a job? You need a reference? You need, you know, you just need to talk through this um, because that that was given to me in so many ways uh, from other people. So I, I try to tap into it as much as I can. See, I told you it's not age, it's wisdom. <laughs> it's not age, it's wisdom. Well, I feel like there's a moment that you haven't told us about that made you decide that you are the person that can get through anything that you can accomplish anything because there's there's a moment like that for everyone i bring on this podcast because there's a certain type of person that comes on and talks to me on this podcast like you said it's about finding extraordinary yeah so when was that moment for you where you were like you know what f this this crap where i'm at right now this is what it is I'm going to get through this or I've shown myself that I got through this. I don't care what comes at me next. Yeah. I'm going to, I'm going to take care of it and I'm going to reach the mountaintop. Yeah. I think it really happened over a course of time. I think back to my freshman year of high school, I, uh, I go into that, that, you know, in advanced math, you know, I feel like I'm, I'm a class clown. You know, and that's another thing we could talk about, you know, men, men trying to master emotions through humor and other ways. So that's what I, I did. I just tried to be funny. I tried to be the class clown all the time. That didn't bode well for my grades. I failed, <laughs> I failed two classes, one being Spanish, which I'm still not good at, though I've tried a couple more times. And the other being geometry, which I was uh, in a, a year ahead of my, uh, the rest of my grade. And uh, at the time, uh, my mom being the, the parent that that she was said, all right, you're going to spend the whole summer reading because you failed two classes. And what I started to, to gather um, at that moment, you know, uh, it was that it was embarrassing actually to fail. It, it wasn't something that made you funny. Nobody liked the dumb kid. So if you fast forward a bit, that was the last bad grade I've ever gotten in my life. From that moment on, A's, B's, mostly A's all through college. It was a really, really it was just interesting kind of looking back on it and thinking of it. It was like failing made me realize I'm not hitting my potential. And my mom's action made me realize that it sucks to be grounded for a whole summer. Mm-hmm. And so the grades helped. But what, what I think, you know, obviously leaving the nest and having to do so early, I think is obviously the thing that pushed me to have to um, – you know, be that true independent person. And so when, you know, anytime you're dealing with parents that that are dealing with addiction, it just forces you to grow up earlier. But when you're, when you're fully saying like, I'm detaching from the nest, I don't need you. It's also hard on the parents. Like I'm working, I'm paying for my car, my car insurance, I'm paying for my phone. What do I need you for? I know how to do my own stuff. Um, And I think that was in the combination of those two things is recognizing that it, you know you need in order to be successful you got to put in the work get the grades and it, no one else is going to do it for you you know you are responsible for you 
that was, I can't tell you the exact moment, but that realization, I always look back on and be like, thank God that happened. Because if you, if you look at so many other people that are in situations where they come from uh, poor backgrounds or poor educations or poor socio socioeconomic or, um, you know, issues where their parents aren't there. It's, it's like they can never fully grasp that it's only on you. It, it, it is you, like you have to figure it out. Um, and nobody's going to be there as a safety net. And so what ends up happening is they tend to feed in to the sympathy and they said to feed into their, uh, sort of their, um, pre predisposed, demise that everyone looks at them and says, Oh, you're already a failure. Who cares? Let's move on. So they feed into it because it's more comfortable to do that than it is to challenge and say like, no, I'm responsible for me. I'm going to handle it. I don't need any excuses. Like I got this. Um, and I understand why people feel that way. It's a lot easier to play the victim card. Mm -hmm. Seth, you know me well enough. Others will know that I am not a fan of the victim mentality. Uh, I am somebody obviously that's come from a you know, a lot of humbling experiences. You're not going to find me asking for people's sympathy. I, I, I truly believe that at the moment you sort of fall in into that, you've lost. And I understand why people that are come from low income backgrounds and in these sort of situations end up in that place. And what would you say to them if if those types of people approach you? Again, you're you're accountable for you and you know, I have a, a lot of sort of wisdom for those that are already in the mix, like already, already on the right and path. Um, but for those that are like sitting at that, you know, in that moment where they feels like, feels like the whole weight of the world is against you. I would just say, have confidence in yourself, bet on yourself. If you know, and that's one of the key tenets I think of, of, of extracting, um, you know, success is like, you have to be a believer in yourself. So how do you feel about, how do you feel about the way our culture approaches things now when people who lose still get a trophy, when people are asked to be, people tell other people to coddle people when they're going through, not necessarily a, life-threatening struggle but when you know they quote unquote lose it's twofold um i think part of it as a competitor i think it's important to learn how that you have to put in the work to win right Mm -hmm. and if you end up getting in a mindset that you're going to win no matter what happens and some people are born with a silver spoon and end up falling victim to this themselves where uh, the floor is so high for them, um, right? And and they don't they don't truly know what it's like to lose. I think that can that can be a bad thing. What I'll also say though is I can almost remember every single, not every single, but the some really meaningful, uh, positive words of affirmation that people have provided me or experiences that really made me feel good, that made me want to do that thing again. And what I mean by that is I can remember a boss that says, wow, Tyler, like you'd really crush that. And I might remember that for 10 years because it feels good. And and so as somebody that love language drop here, words of affirmation guy, 
it can feel good like for a kid to feel good that they're a part of a winning thing that there's some positivity in their life i don't think that's all bad what i don't think you know it's not a one like many things in this world it falls in the gray area now whether it's dark gray or light gray yeah <laughs> we can debate but it's not black and white right 50 shades right yeah. <laughs> um and so these you know some of these it's all about meeting kids where they need to be met and that's why i have so much respect for teachers you know that have to dig in and figure out that you can't paint the whole classroom with one brush. One kid might need that positivity. He needs that trophy to build the confidence in himself. He wants to be a part of the team. And then there's another group of people that might be born differently that uh, they might need to recognize that, you know, you're, hey, bro, you're not shit, <laughs> you know? Mm-hmm. And, and and so I don't think that there's a perfect answer like most things in this world. Totally agree. I, there's no There's no canvas that is the same, you know, Everyone has their unique situation. It's, I, I feel like that we may have a, a similar mindset because of our, our, our total background, but definitely our, our competitive sports background. Like you said, you had to earn your spot on the college football team. It's not easy. You know, I had to earn a scholarship to play baseball. And then I had to perform on top of that when I was on the team. And there's those moments in, in competition and practice or throughout the year where it's like, man, I'm struggling. I need to get better. I need to perform well. And the worst thing for me at that time would be to, for someone to be like, Hey, you know what? You're still getting a trophy. Yeah. Because you're here. It, that doesn't motivate me. You know, that doesn't, I don't think something like that would push me to, to improve my performance. But at the same time, I also don't think it's like, hey, you perform well or you're done. There's got to be like that gray area that you're talking about how on, on how to handle yeah. those types of situations. And that's, that's what the experts do. Yeah. I mean, you got to give a lot of credit, credit to the teachers and coaches that are figuring always figuring out, or even managers at work that figure out what the right lever to pull on people is. And the best thing that we could ever do is not see the world through our own experiences, but see the world through their eyes, right? And their experiences and then motivate people through those. And obviously you can't throw some crazy Harry Potter thing where all of a sudden you know all of their experiences, but right. you can start to get a sense once you get to know people that like they view the world differently because of their experiences. Um, I'm reading a book right now, um, Psychology of Money, Morgan Housel. And he talks about, um, you know, people's views on money. And I haven't really thought about this in a way, but like, think about everyone from a different generation, somebody that grew up in a depression versus somebody that grew up during the tech bubble, the real estate, you know, boom, you know, you go on, they all have different experiences about money. Now contrast that with some that grow up poor and some that grow up rich. Like you have, like, here's one fungible piece of currency that we all view that has very differently that has emotional attachment in so many different ways. And that's how I kind of look at this is like, we all have our own experiences. The best thing we can do is to not go into situations and say, 
my way is the highway. My experience, I think, um, it, you know, it, based upon my experiences, this is the way that you should do it. You should go into it and say, based upon the way that you see the world, this is the proper approach. And I don't think enough, unfortunately, not enough people do it that way. Well, case in point, even in our last topic, I was kind of sharing something from, from my point of view. And you're right. It is not easy to always see something from someone else's point of view. So from for someone that is the VP of their business and you are challenged with that every day to see something from everyone's point, every from different angles and, and to basically think about like, okay, what should I expect if we do this? What should I expect if we do this? How will this person over here see this, see me making this move? You know, how, how do you do it? How do you empathize with, with other people's perceptions? I would say it's one of the hardest things I have to do is to really not put a hundred percent stake in my own opinion. Um, because when you grow up as a very, very independent person and you make it to the point where you're successful, it's only natural that you just think you have it all figured out. <laughs> mm-hmm. Right. And so it's a, it's something that I constantly have to struggle with is recognizing that, um, you know, my way again, isn't always the perfect way. Um, and so that's why, well, there's a multitude of ways to answer this question, but the best thing to do is to build diverse teams and not hire the 10 guys that look like you, that talk like you, that you'd be best friends with, you know, it's the higher, it's the higher purposefully people that are very different, not necessarily always in the way they look or their gender, but just in the way that they think those other things are important too. the backgrounds that they have. And so purposely you build diverse teams and you find a way to be able to like I've always learned that I sit back in meetings and I watch people talk and I gather the opinions and I'm not the person that sits in that meeting um, and likes to there are times you have to take control but I like to sit back and and this is early on in my, um, my days at T-Row I remember being in a meeting with three junior people and a bunch of senior people and I had a couple peers and you know, they were talking back and forth and back and forth. And one would parrot the other one. And they just want to talk to be talked because this is their forum to finally be heard in front of everyone. Mm-hmm. And I sat back and I watched and I watched. I'm thinking, I'm writing down notes. And finally, one of the, the higher-ups goes, well, Tyler, what do you have to think about it? And when the time came to me, I was ready, man. I, I knew exactly what I wanted to say because I had taken a moment to actually think about the problem before actually speaking about it. Um. And so I said, X, Y, Z, blah, blah, blah. So-and-so said this, you said that. I disagree with this. I agree with this. Um, and so I kind of take that approach now where I like to just sit back and and watch people talk and debate. And then finally, I'm like, okay, this is where I come out at. Um, but it's not always easy. Sometimes I go in and I'm, <laughs> I have a lot of conviction about something and I have to reel it back. Um, but that's, that's part of growing, man. That's, that's yeah. part of, of, of trying to figure it out. Um, and being introspective enough to know that you're not always going to get it right. hundred percent, hundred percent. I, I feel like this is a good lead into, into one, one moment in your life that has severely shaped the way you think and, and taken, you know, just, it's a big chunk of of your life and and that's obviously 
the disappearance of, of your brother. You know, and you're talking about having convic- conviction for thinking one way. I can only imagine with, with what happened. I can only imagine with what happened you were thinking one way, but then a new piece of information comes out or someone says something and then it completely changes the way you think. So I think with that, can you share a little bit about what has happened, where we are now, and really how this has changed your life? Yeah, I'd love to. Um, And so kind of fast forward, go to Western Michigan, play football, have the greatest five years <laughs> of my life, rack up a bunch of student debt. Um, but, man, I loved college. From there, I moved to Baltimore, Maryland, uh, and actually moved to Texas and then moved to Baltimore. Um, you know, and I, and, and I was getting things humming, man. I was I was uh, trying to cl- climb the corporate ladder, um, you know, really started off at the ground floor and, and – and it was really tr- starting to make wake at the firm. So about five, six years ago, I guess five years ago, exactly. Um, I was in Nashville for a friend's bachelor party, um, having a grand old time, um, as you do in Nashville at bachelorettes or bachelor parties. Um, first time I was ever there. Um, and, I, uh, I get a FaceTime or actually a, a, at the time we were using Snapchat for my brother and I'm showing him everything we're doing in Nashville. And he, he's shown me that, you know, he's in a car headed to Hermosa beach. I don't know Hermosa beach from long beach from <laughs> any sort of beach. I've never been to Hermosa beach. I don't know what it is, but I'm like, Oh, awesome. He's going to watch the UFC fight. Uh, I go about my business, uh, wake up the next morning. Uh, I call my brother to check in with him. And at the time, my brother was going through a divorce uh, for with his wife that he had been with right as he got into the military. And so they had a, a long history. They, they ended up uh, having three children, and they just grew apart. But they they were great co-parents. And I was helping my brother get through that. Um, and part of helping your brother get through that when you're a single guy is, Hey, come and hang out with my friends. You know, we're (laughs) younger. We'll go out, we'll have fun. You can, you know, anyone can be a part of our unit. And so we would travel. We went to Vegas. We went to Jacksonville, the Florida, Georgia game. Um, I would come out to California at the time I was uh, working internally covering Southern California. So I would come out here for work and we would hang out and, and it was just, it was awesome because I never got, I got never got to do, do that with my brother and, yeah. and he's newly single and he's a bit of a wounded duck, you know, and he's trying to figure out like, Hey, I'm mid thirties. Um, you know, I have three children. I'm going through a divorce. Uh, this sucks. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. And so I'm there for him and we're talking and I'm talking him through it and, you know, things are really turning in corner and, and, um, and so my brother going out that weekend in Hermosa, I thought was awesome. Yeah, I think that's exactly what he should be doing. The kids are with his um, his wife, soon to be ex-wife, and he's going to have fun with some friends from work. Just a couple of months prior, him and I had taken a trip to to Coronado Island, and we stayed in the naval base where the Navy SEALs uh, trained, and we had a tremendous weekend. 
you know, we uh, drove around Coronado. Uh, we looked at the aircraft carriers and they're all lit up at night, red, white, and blue. We played tennis in the rain. We went out in the gas lamp district and drank our faces off. We just, uh, we just had a blast. Um, during that trip, well, let me, I'm like, I'll get to that trip later where it's more relevant, but ultimately if we fast forward, uh, you know, to the night that he's out, he goes out with friends. They go to the underground bar here um, that if anyone's local familiar with uh, in Hermosa Beach, they watch the UFC fight. There's video footage of my brother you know, grabbing at fighters on the TV screen, having a good time playing catch up. Um, they end up walking over to the Hermosa Pier and he gets in line for a bar. Now, Seth, you and I have gone out together. We've stood in lines. You typically know all the door guys, so maybe we don't stand in line <laughs> often. But we see other people standing in lines, right? Right. So this is a thing that happens, right? You go out, you stand in line. None of my friends like to stand in line. My brother didn't like to stand in line either. He has to take a piss. He gets out of the line. He tells them, hey, I'll be right back. Would we all agree that probably that happens a lot for our generation? Mm -hmm. Hey, we'll see you in a second. No big deal. He walks right next door to Robert's Liquor. He looks for a bathroom. He walks in, walks out, no bathroom there, and then walks around the corner uh, uh, away from Pier Avenue. While that's happening, his friends are in line saying, this line is too damn long. I don't want to be in this line anymore. Let's just go next door. There's plenty of people over there. We can all agree that happens too. Mm -hmm. And so what they did is they texted him and they said, hey, we're going right next door. Well, unfortunately, my brother's phone was dead. And so he never received that text. And ultimately, he never saw any of his friends or family again from that moment. Mm. So my brother comes back, and this is through footage. He comes back around the corner as the last member of his party is departing the line and going to the next bar. And he, you know, he, you can see him kind of looking around. And he ends up spending the rest of the evening meandering about the pier plaza meanwhile his friends have called him some 20 sometimes they've texted him but they just think that mike's being mike he's being some social butterfly he's out there just having a good time i mean obviously i think and this is an important distinction here because i you know throughout this whole process there there's always this thought that like how could his friends leave him there it's a generational difference on how we look at how we go out when we actually go out these days. And what I, what I mean by that is I would imagine somebody, you know, my parents' age, when they go out, they went out as a unit because they didn't have cell phones. And so you didn't, you never, you know, ended up uh, leaving your friend's side. You were always within arm's length because if not, you're not going to get a ride home with everyone. There's no Uber. Today, as we all know, we text each other, we, you know, Hey, you're out, you're going to go across the street and get some baked bear <laughs> cookie <laughs> ice cream sandwich. Go ahead, man. I'll see you in a second. Oh, you're going to go get some pizza. Sure. Go ahead. You know, we take that for granted. Um, and so that's one of the, the things I, I just want to dispel is I have no ill will towards his friends. I think that's something I've done hundreds of times now, mm. knowing the benefit of hindsight do I care more that, you know, if my friends leave without telling me, yes, I, I, I have a sensitivity to that as you can imagine, but it is yeah. something that I don't, I don't hold the grudge do, but on the internet, people are ruthless about, um, his friends activities that night. And I just think it, it must be a generational thing because I, I, I look at that as just another standard weekend. And so, 
fast forward, you get, you know, my brother walking around the Pier Plaza for the evening, and you can imagine that here's a guy who's amped for the weekend, you know, with all his friends, and now he's at a situation where his phone is dead, he can't find anyone, he's walking around like, well, what the hell, this sucks, but he's an optimist. My brother's a a, a big-time optimist. I love optimists. I'm not one. I'm a realist, but I love my brother because he's an optimist. And so he's probably like, how can I salvage my vacation time here at the beach? I don't get a lot of time away from work, away from kids to just do my thing. Like, How can I make sure I'm just not walking around this damn pier plaza the whole night? He walks back into Robert's Liquor. At this point, it's probably 11 o'clock or so. And he, the last video that they have of Mike is walking basically towards the beach um, uh, in, in, in what is known as the Mermaid parking lot. But if others are familiar with the area, it's, it's next to Slater's 50-50. And ultimately, he's never seen again. And so Sunday, uh, of course, rolls around. His friends, uh, Mike's nowhere to be found. His car's still at the hotel. And they just assume that he is maybe hung out with a girl or did his thing or what have you. So they head on home. I call my brother because I can't wait to tell him about the the weekend I've had in Nashville. His phone goes to voicemail. But he's a single guy. So who know who the hell knows? You know, because there's not a GPS tracking device on him right now. There's not anyone that's really you know really paying attention. And so he ends up uh or or sorry, then he ends up not showing to work the next morning. Big red flag for Mike. Loved his career. Uh, would never just not show up to work. In addition, my nephew Jaden was having surgery on his mouth that morning, and Mike was responsible for bringing some of the insurance forms. Another big red flag. Does everything for his kids. That's when things start to start to to line up. Where his friends are like, "Oh crap! Like we need to, we need to do something." So they file a missing persons report. One thing leads to another. I end up getting a phone call that Monday. Again, living in Baltimore, not thinking anything of it. And we spent all of Monday, you know, trying to find him, calling police departments, calling hospitals. I'm like, my my brother's a bit of a lightweight drinker. I'm thinking, all right, this dude's just got to, you know, he probably is either with a girl or he's just discovered tinder at the time like who knows what the you know like i'm trying to be there for my boy little do i know that probably works at you know to my detriment over this time period but i'm calling i'm not getting a response my mom is calling you know ever well backtrack i had to tell my mom what was going on which was brutal i'm like mom can't find mike didn't show up to work and she's like okay you know and i'm like don't worry we're working on it but you know, if you could help, uh, please, you know, please help. And it, it, it just a, such a brutal thing to have to tell your mom. But mm-hmm. at that time, you don't really realize the gravity. It sounds worse in hindsight, but I was just really nervous telling her. And so um, at the time, he had been talking to this girl. Uh, her name is Monique. And uh, Monique ends up driving uh, to Hermosa and trying to connect with the police department. And they make... Uh, not a lot of strides because Mike is an adult that's missing. If there's one big thing I want to take from this podcast um, around 
missing people, it's that 600,000 missing people happen per year. That's a pretty sizable number. 90% of them are found. They're either found alive or dead. But 10% of them actually never get found, like my brother. Wow. And some, like, call it 4,500 bodies actually are never identified. And so there is, this is a thing. I didn't know it was a thing. Who? Why would you? I'm just a normal dude. I don't watch crime documentaries. I don't, mm-hmm. You know, I don't. Yeah. That's not my thing. Um, and, and so to police departments, it's like this happens not every day, but it happens pretty frequently. And they come home. People, you know, have domestic disputes. They leave. They come back, you know, and sometimes it's, it's graver situations than that. But but this is not something that like they were jumping at the gun to come and help and and, and remedy. Um, and so we spent um, most of Monday, you know, trying to, to to figure it out. But the police they were like, all right, whatever. So I fly, get on a plane. My younger brother flying from Michigan, myself flying from uh, Baltimore. I touch down in Hermosa Beach, or LAX, and then Hermosa Beach. We go right to the police station. There's a a woman waiting there from that's a local that's trying to help us out and uh we end up speaking with speaking with the police chief and it's starting to become real uh, by this point it's tuesday so mm-hmm. if we backtrack right we went missing saturday night tuesday is too long <laughs> yeah right part wow part because he's a person on his own you don't really realize he's missing until monday but part because he's an adult missing and there's not a lot you can do mm-hmm. and so by this point you know, as you can imagine, I don't know what the hell to think. I'm very confused. I'm scared. I am, uh, I am, I am worried. I'm naive. I don't, but I do know that somebody has to take control of the situation. Um, and I do know that I'm probably best suited to take control of the situation. And so I do. And, you know, I try to keep like, like I always have a level head about things. And so we start down the path of trying to find my brother and it is, um, it is something where you don't have a roadmap. There's not like some, some master's class that you can take masterminds class. That's like how to find a missing person. Right. Um, you can only imagine, you know, so you're, you're trusting your instincts in a lot of ways. So, you know, we, we get to work, man. And, and so we work, we put a lot of faith in, in what the government, uh, both the military and um, the police department, give to us as guidance. In hindsight, it could have been good advice. It might have been bad advice, but we try to – I'm a big believer in trusting the experts, man. I'm not a doctor. I don't know how to diagnose people. I'm not a policeman. I don't know how to you know, go about missing persons reports. So I mm-hmm. follow experts. I believe that that's usually the best course of action. Um. But ultimately, we get to work, man, and, and um, you know, we're out there and we're handing out flyers. And this is a moment um, that I just, you know, gets me back to, like, this moment of kind of shame. But it's like you're walking up to people and you're like, hey, here's a flyer. They don't know what the flyer is, but they automatically are like, why is this guy up in my space? Mm-hmm. I don't trust him. He wants something. Their aversion is up, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. And I'm, I'm in my, like, I'm just in desperation mode. I'm like, my brother is missing, blah, blah. They're like, no, 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 I don't need anything, man. And they keep walking. And it's like this, you feel like no one is seeing you. Mm-hmm. 
Um, wow. It's just brutal. And and so here I am. I'm like, no, no, I'm just a normal dude. I'm just like you. Like I am just like you. I, I wouldn't have thought this was going to happen to me, you know, when it did. Um, please like, like hear me out. And it just is, it's a struggle, man. Businesses hard to work with. They're like, Hey, I don't know. I advertise this stuff. I don't know what this is. Or like some of them, you know, that that's sort of the negative side. The positive side is like, I had people like grab my arm, pray with me, uh, businesses that'll post it up all over their walls. Um, but you know, that was a humbling couple days, man, where you just are on the ground. I'm knocking on, I mean, if anyone's been to Manhattan beach or Hermosa beach, it's some of the nicest houses in the world. I'm knocking on their door and saying, can you help me? And they're like, you know, go away. Or <laughs> some of them are their vacation homes. They're not there. Right. And some people are like, Oh my gosh, like, yes, we're, of course we'll help you. So we do the news interviews. And, and I, I, I've said this today as I, I interviewed with a, a number of uh, media agencies and, and, and I've said, I look back on the prior versions of ourselves with pity I feel bad for those people, you know, our prior versions of ourselves, because they don't know what the next month is going to entail, what the next five years is going to entail. And as I sat on Hermosa Beach Pier today, I thought, we are not in any different of a spot than we were five years ago. And so I feel bad for that person that's going to have to go, you know, through through that. Mm -hmm. um, so I guess let me pause there and get kind of your insight on on that thus far well i mean that's that's a lot to take in and i can't help but feel bad for the whole situation yeah i mean i personally haven't lost a sibling or anyone in my direct family knock on wood i have lost one of my best friends and when I first heard when his father called me while I was just driving on the interstate, I had to pull over and, and stop because I, I couldn't stop crying. And when I thought about it, even right now it brings up emotions. And this is back when I was, this is back when I was 18. So this is a long time ago because I have a lot of wisdom now. I I couldn't get my thoughts together. I couldn't even talk. So I can only imagine what you were feeling like in that in that circumstance and would I have pity for for do I have pity for myself? for for like who who I was in that circumstance when I lost my best friend I don't think I do I I I don't disagree with you but I just don't think I I have pity what I what I think about is maybe maybe I wish I had more information maybe I wish I had more experience because I don't think there is a a right or a wrong way to deal with this type of circumstance. Because like we were talking about earlier, when you're vulnerable, when you're truly vulnerable in whatever 
mud that you're in because you're in it and you can't get out. And the only thing on your left, right, back, and front is mud. That's that's where you are and, you're, and you deal with that. And there's no certain way to go about it. So, so do, do I have pity on myself when I lost my best friend when I was 18? No. In fact, I'm very, very sad that it happened. Very, very sad. But because of that certain experience, when similar things have happened, maybe not in my life, but in other people's lives, and I'm there for them, I know how to be there for them. Yeah. And I'm very grateful for that. For instance, I don't know this mom and daughter too well, but I know them because we, we cross paths every now and then. They recently lost their father. Uh, their, I'm sorry. They, the, the daughter lost her father. The wife lost her husband. Same person. In a fishing accident, they were out in the ocean and the last thing that's the last time they've they've seen him and uh he just hasn't turned up because you know he he went out on a day where uh, ironically the the tide got really high the winds got really high really quick and and that's it they haven't heard from him this has been like 45 days or so like wow. to this day yeah. and ironically when when they were out and about shortly after that happened, they ran into me and they, and I was like the first person they told and thank, thank God. Like I, I was that person because I was like, okay, I'm here for you. I, I haven't been in that particular situation, but I've been in something similar and I can appreciate this experience that you're going through correctly. Not yeah. correctly, but, you know, I can just appreciate this situation. So let me just be here for you and and be there. Yeah, and I think that's part of what helped me in Mike's situation is that I had lost people in the past. And I think that for as morbid and terrible as that is, that experience does allow you to lend a helping hand in, in a lot of circumstances. I lost a great friend of ours um, a couple of years after college. He was out with friends in, at a Michigan-Michigan State game and got hit by a car. A group of my friends got hit by a vehicle that went up on the, on, on the sidewalk and killed him. And to have to deliver that news to people that were as much of a best friend to him as I, as I was um, – it's hard, man. And, and, and so it, it grounds you. And, and so in this instance, having to deliver this news of my brother, I, I've been through enough trauma to know that like, I can stay level headed. Like that's part of why I think it, I was able to be a leader in the circumstance is because, you know, I've, I've, I've been weathered, you know, you don't become a warrior without going through a little bit of war. Yeah. <laughs> right. Absolutely. And so, when I say pity, I only mean so in the sense that there's no closure, right? So when you end up having 
a death that happens. We have a grieving process and we go through it all, but there's closure. It's done. It's the circle of life. It happens. Sometimes it's an accident. Sometimes it's not. In this instance, knowing that it, you know, that person I'm watching myself five years earlier is about to go through five years Mm -hmm. of a perpetual grieving process where you're not going to be able to make any progress is why I have pity for that person. If there was closure that day, I would say, man, here is another accident that took place, a life lost too soon, like all the cliches, right? Here it's just, it is wildly um, unorthodox to go through a human experience where there's no closure. Mm -hmm. And what if, but in the same sense that you don't know, in the same sense that you don't know exactly what could happen on the other side of, of making a decision, what happens if you don't go through what you went through for, for the last five years? You know, do you see, do you make different life decisions? Does your life end up going a different way, good or bad? Do do you really know? Yeah, and honestly, genuinely, my life is in a much even better spot than I thought was possible five years ago. I mean, there's been, you know, massive personal strides on uh, uh, on the job front. There has been a network of people that I have the most deep relationships with. I truly got to feel the power of this network that you build up. Because if you think about it, Seth, like what is the point of a network, right? It's sometimes companionship. But a lot of times it's like when you need something that they're there. And I have a big network. And they were there, man. They stepped up. My people stepped up. And their network stepped up. And this thing... You know, when when I think back to when it happened, it was trending on Facebook, which, you know, was right under presidential candidate Donald Trump at the time as one of the top stories in the entire United States. That's the power of network, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it, you know, just a, a, a tremendous um, validation that these relationships matter. And so you were right. It, it has worked out in, in the positive. Um, would I trade every ounce of it back? Of course, if I knew that I could get my brother back. Mm-hmm. Do I have confidence in myself enough that no matter if I was dealt that good hand or bad hand, that I would have found a way to be able to make it? Of course. But I am a profoundly different person. And and, and I'll touch on maybe just one quick way of of, of how it changed me which is, and, and maybe many, many people can relate to this, which is there are many tragedies. People are losing their grandparents, their parents. They might have lost a friend. You just described losing a friend. You just described you know, another instance where family wasn't found. They're everywhere. I spent two months straight watching the actual local news. There was nothing but bad stories that time out mm-hmm. there. Behind every one of these stories is a family a friend, a colleague, right? We're all going through things. What I wasn't mindful enough of prior to my brother's story was just the um, the amount of things that other people are going through, and I wasn't doing enough to provide a helping hand. So while my brother's tragedy was unique 
in its construct, it wasn't the tragedy of in and of itself is not unique, if that makes sense. And so I am so much more tapped in to what's happening within my network and the things that my friends or even strangers are going through, through the benefit of hindsight of all the people that help me to where there will not be a situation where I see, oh, hey, so-and-so lost their grandma, that I don't say something. That so-and-so needs the money on a GoFundMe, sure, take my money. <laughs> because mm-hmm. I, I've i seen it play out in my own world. Like, like I said earlier, I owe the world a debt, a debt a, a, of, of gratitude uh, that is immeasurable. Um, but that was one of the biggest learnings that, I'll, that, that I had from that. And that's my case in point. Right there is that it's it's not that you didn't do enough at the time. You you didn't have this experience of five years that you're talking about to where you are today to get into even that mindset of being able to empathize or understand what other people are going through. So that's it's it. In a very backwards way, this whole experience, everyone else is very lucky that this happened to you because you are now the person that you have become to help all those in your network. Yeah. You know, or maybe not even help, but be that understanding person that realizes like, hey, I understand Maybe your your aunt passed away, but that could have been your your rock. That could have been like your person. And honestly, if God forbid something like like that happened to me, yeah, you'd be one of the first people that I would talk to because you can empathize and like you get it. It's interesting you say that. I had a a, a friend of mine, a good friend of mine, back in Baltimore, who's sister was running in downtown Baltimore and somebody was, I believe texting, but they ran through a red light and hit his sister and their dog and killed her. And this is somebody that, you know, I knew very well. And that day he called the day, you know, probably within, you know, you know, within hours trying to figure out how to grieve from the situation. Now I don't have all the answers, of course not. Um, everyone's situation is unique. But I do think that, you know, we all have a purpose within our network. Like I said, it takes a village to raise people. And maybe my place in that is to help on, uh, you know, help people through hard times. And so I don't have uh, the right advice for them at the time. I mean, there's no perfect advice. We, you have to go through the grieving process. But the fact that he reached out to me sort of hit home that finer point that that you know, this is probably something I'm going to be relegated to for the rest of my life and in a positive way. And, and, and so I really, you know, I don't, I don't welcome any of those calls. It is really, really tough to lose somebody that you love. Um, and you know, I don't like the one that has to be the one that had to go through the practice of getting to that point, no. but it is, um, to your point, I, I think it can provide some guidance where there might be a void in other areas for people that haven't lost individuals or, or go through tragedies that come out of nowhere. Um, and I just, I mean, I just so much feel for those people in those moments. Um, so in a lot of ways, you know, that was a big blessing um, 
you know, there's many blessings. Another is just the power of humanity, man. People coming together to do great things when, when a story touches them is remarkable. I mean, we put up at the time a GoFundMe account and, you know, I looked at the names on that GoFundMe account and a lot of them were, were strangers. A lot of them were colleagues that I never in a million years would have thought they would have ever even cared about what has going on in my life. Here's $500, Tyler. Here's $1,000. Here's, you know what I'm saying? And and you see that and you recognize that like, wow, I could never repay these people. And the power of humanity is in strangers is, is just tremendous. And you start to see this on the internet now where, you know, you end up seeing a homeless guy get a house bought for him or like, you know, the happy parts of what we should be focusing about. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, I saw a lot of the negative parts of society too. Um, people taking advantage of situations, people trying to extort my mother for money using, you know, using my brother's story. Um, people making up things. Uh, I mean, uh, the comment section of the internet during, you know, I, I've read one, um, that was, Hey, um, the brother, uh, is going to the one that the, his brother, the one that volunteered that he likely went swimming is likely going to take the insurance proceeds and get married, remarried to his wife to my brother's wife um you know you and and i remember you know telling to my family like stay off the comment section like we don't want <laughs> but you also have to recognize that there could be evidence there there could be things and so it, that <laughs> there's there's tough parts of humanity too there were people that took advantage of the situation um and, and like all things in life again it all falls in the gray area but i was so overwhelmed with um the people within my network and extended network and the things that they put together, I, I think it put a lot of faith in humanity for me. Um, yeah. Just, just take, take a moment, take a moment, take pretty, that pretty in. Pretty wild. <laughs> take a moment, take that in. I think that's, it's pretty, again, you talked about, you love optimists. I feel like I'm pretty optimistic with like a, a little like shade of, of realistic, but you had this, this very dramatic experience happen in your life. And I, with all things that happened, I think that one trumps that, that is, that, that is the king of dramatic experiences as of now. And geez, with, without it, I can't imagine, I can't imagine who you'd be with, without it, but I know who you are with that happening. And you got to see great, beautiful, awesome sides of, of people and their actions in life. And you got to see the not so great, beautiful, awesome sides of people in their, in their actions in their lives. And man, it, I, I just, I feel like the world is better because of your experience and what you can provide. And it sucks that, that, yeah, you, you are the player in the situation. You're not, 
you're not the one watching. Yeah. But man, um, everything serves you in, in so many different ways. And I think this one has served you pretty well. Well, the story, I hope we have, has a, has a happy ending. Um, and, and so if we were to fast forward, obviously a painful, <laughs> you know, first couple weeks, um, you know, a number of items that, that transpired over the coming months, the most notable to me, uh, being at a, uh, Anaheim Ducks game with my nephews and nieces while my brother, uh, nephews and niece while, while my brother was missing. And I thought, all right, we got to get away. We got to do something positive here. Right. Yeah. And, and, and the thing about teenagers or, or even, you know, pe- people don't understand what the hell's going on is that you can't, you're not going to lie to them. Right. Mm-hmm. And so we go through this and I'm like, you have to be honest with them and, and you try to put yourself in their shoes and, and how confusing it must be. And I'm like, we gotta, we gotta take them to, you know, a game. So we go get tickets, we go to Buffalo wild wings. And I get a text on my phone that after we went looking for my brother and I'm up and down the coastline and that a body was spotted, um, in you know, in, in the South Bay area, um, actually right about the area that they told me that the body might might wash ashore which is near the redondo beach marina and so here i am playing uncle with my nephews and niece trying to put on a happy face but meanwhile i know that you know in in hermosa that there there are um, uh, lifeguards and and sonar and (laughs) helicopters and divers taking place that potentially could be the moment that we find my brother and uh, it turns out that after searching for hours and, and kind of being caught up in that moment that it's marine wildlife. It wasn't my mm-hmm. brother and they didn't end up, end up ever, ever finding him. And I think through, you know, moments like that, it just like, you know, the, the, uh, like having to step in and, and handle those and be a leader and, and not put that burden on others has both helped in the sense that I think by not putting that burden on others, you, you make them a, uh, you're not, you don't expose them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but it's hurt too. I mean, you, there's, there's only so many, so many strikes you can take before you kind of break down. And so what I would say is that while your comment is appreciated about, you know, potentially some of the world being better because of it, a lot of it was better because I had a great support system. So as mm-hmm. I broke down, you know, and I hit those points where I'm like, all right, I'm taking it on the chin over and over again, you know, for the family. Oh, dead body washed ashore here. Don't call me. Call, don't call my parents. Don't call, you know, my sister-in-law. I'll vet it out. <laughs> like, I don't need them to be worrying about it. But then again, it comes back to this network of people that like, you know, and other, you know, my family members, we're all going through it. And I think we're all better or we're more, more hardened. Like I said, we're warriors, man. <laughs> yeah. You know, we've been through the war. Um, and so, you know, I do think, um, you know, the situation you know, for the kids, I, I don't think that they're in a better spot, but their story is still yet to be written. Like, I think that they would, you know, they would really benefit from having their dad in their life, but no differently than some of the challenges that I went through when I grew up, I wouldn't trade those for the world either those made me who I am. And so, you know, you're going to, 
you know, see these kids go on and do great things as well. And that was a big reason that I wanted to move out here is that I thought it was important. Um, you know, when I was in Baltimore, like, like I said, life was good, man. I had a good friends group, good, good job. But what, what was apparent when we went through this is that I could not not be out here. Mm-hmm. Um, because I know what those sort of void those kids are gonna 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 go through, and I want to be there to be able to guide them in the right places. And so, you know, I worked to try to get a new job to come out here, one that I wasn't necessarily ready for from a career standpoint. But I went, you know, I I, I took the biggest market, second biggest market in the country. They gave me the opportunity. They took a, a risk on me, and I'll forever be indebted, you know, to my my colleagues at um, you know at, at T Row for taking that chance, giving me the opportunity to come out here and, and play a role in the kid's life. And it's just interesting watching watching them grow, man, because I know that like this thing is not disappearing. They're not talking about it. They're just like me at the age I was. They're not sharing their emotions. They're keeping them inside. Um, but they're going to be hardened. They're going to be better. They're going to be that person for their friends that are going to go through things. Mm-hmm. And I'm so, so blessed to be out here to be able to, to, to kind of watch them grow. So what would you say to maybe not even your, your nieces and nephews, but, but maybe like anyone going through something that's really impacted their lives? Well, I think it's to maintain a confidence that it gets better. And it's not, it sounds so simplistic. Like all the cliches are right. <laughs> right. And that's why it's, it's so hokey. It's yeah. like, you know, like, you know, tell your, tell your family you love them when you're still alive. I watched a, a video of a, I think it was a Marine that was getting ready to go into a crazy battle. He sends he saves a video that he's going to send to his son if he was not going to return. And then he watches that video years later after he does return. And, you know, the sadness of of that. And his comment was, you know, if I could give any advice is to tell people you love them while they're still alive. And so whether that means writing a letter to everyone that's important to you today, just in case tomorrow doesn't happen, <laughs> You know, um, you should do it. So the cliches are right. Um, I, I'm not going to tell you anything that is profound and different than what all the cliches say, but it's, you know, tell people that, that it's going to get better, that, you know, our situation, you know, it has, it doesn't have a, uh, an ending and that's what makes it so difficult. But for mm-hmm. most of these situations, you're going to have this scenario where you deal with the grieving process you're hardened, you got another layer, you're callous, and now you're ready to take on the world again. And, and the other thing is, again, with the victim mentality, like, don't let tragedy consume you. Don't be identified with tragedy. You know, and the thing about sympathy is it's, people crave it. It makes you feel good when other people, you know, feel bad for you. Mm-hmm. And so it's important to get out of that trap, like, move on. You know what I'm saying? Like if you're sitting back and saying every day, well, my friend died four months ago and it, like, it's like, it might make you feel good in the moment, but it's not going to help you get over it. <laughs> right. Um, and so that's part of it is like, these emotions are strong emotions, man. Um, 
you know, the, the sympathy and, and the people feeling bad for you. And, and you can actually get caught up in it and you could be like, man, you're right. This is really sad that this happened to me. Mm-hmm. Like my life sucks. Uh, you know, <laughs> and, and, and a lot of people do that. And whether it's going back to what I talked about earlier, where they grow up in a, an environment where they don't have a lot of money or, you know, there's bad things happening at home. They attach themselves to this negativity and it doesn't allow them to actually move forward. And, and what it is, is it's trading this short, short-term satisfaction at the expense of long-term growth. And so one of the biggest drivers of, of the way that I think is I'm a long-term thinker. <laughs> I try to do as much as I can to forego short-term satisfaction for the benefit of long-term gain. And it, it allows me this sort of arbitrage in a way where most people are the opposite. Give me well, the exception of Pinkberry. I love Pinkberry, but <laughs> they're like, you know, I'm, I'm willing to eat the big that meal. That is so true. I've seen, I've seen him <laughs> do it. I've seen him where, you know, we're just hanging out and all of a sudden a pink uh, DoorDash person DoorDash comes, comes up and Tyler has Pinkberry all of a sudden. It's like, right. what the hell? Really? Like right now? <laughs> so with the exception of Pinkberry, but think about it. Like so many people in the short term, they'll be like, oh, I want to eat this meal because it makes me feel good. Right. Or I want to skip the workout or I want to sleep in late or I don't want to study when I need to study and they don't have like this long-term thinking. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so what I would say, you know, to kind of bring it all full circle is, is that sort of mindset has helped me in the, in my business world. It's helped me get out of tragedy where I think, okay, what's the long term? Like, don't, don't focus on the one day, one week, one month. Like, what are we trying to get back to? And the people that focus on getting that sympathy and hitting that, um, you know, the thing that makes you feel good, they're going to be stuck in that longer than they want to be. And they're not, it's not going to allow them to move forward. Man, that right there is like, boom, that's, that's the podcast right there. (laughs) That's why you as a listener need to listen to this. So that it's the wisdom again. So wise. uh, I know. I know the wisest people in this room were the only people in this room, <laughs> but you know, I, I, I can't thank you enough for, for sharing that whole experience and what, what you went through, how it's affected you and how it's made you become who you are today. That I know you've, you've talked to a ton of different reporters, you've shared it, but you know, uh, for, for this podcast, I, I really do appreciate you, you know, diving deep into that and, and, and sharing that. Um, I would like to kind of switch directions if you're okay with that, please. Yeah. Long-term thinking. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, talk to us a little bit now about what you're doing on the business side uh, or, or I'm sorry, I, professionally, and where you want to take that? Like, what's your what's your mindset into where you want to go from being the VP? Well, I don't know. I don't have the I don't have the answer of where I want to go, and I like mm-hmm. that. I'm comfortable with that because as I think back to the start of my career, I didn't even know the job that I have today even existed. 
And so you have to, I've heard this from other uh, of, of, of your guests, you just have to be kind of comfortable getting in the seat and going on the ride, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Too often you think about like kids that go to school and they, they're aligned to 15 potential career options, right? I mean, they're going to be a teacher, a lawyer, a doctor, blah, blah, blah. But they don't tell you that like, hey, you could be the middle manager of the operations department of this, <laughs> right? There's yeah. so many jobs that we we just don't know about. So I don't pretend to know where, where the career is going to go. But what I do know is I will continue to do things that stoke my curiosity, that make that that put myself on the cutting edge of what's happening in the world because that's what excites me um and i don't know what that's going to look like i have no idea i do know that today you know we're working on something that's exciting when i was at t row we were looking at something that's exciting and i believe that we're going to build out what is the engine of how sales is done at least on the investment side in the year 2030 and the way that we're going to do that is through data and automation, mm-hmm. right? And then we're going to bring in people at the point of sale that are highly, highly skilled. And so it's not to say that salespeople um, aren't going to exist because they are and they're very valued. Um, but they're going to be empowered by technology. And too often, we, at least in this industry and I would imagine other industries, we fall back on this world that all businesses won at a golf course or over a beverage. And I believe we can make better decisions, uh, both as the buyer and as the seller, if we let data inform what products we should buy and sell, and we start to know our customers better. And so I'm working with a great team to kind of build that out from here forward. Uh, you know, I'm, uh, I'm, re- I'm just so open to wherever it's going to take me, man. I've had great success at just going with the flow. And as I mentioned, like so often like people in, in, in careers that I follow, they get so caught up in the short term. Can I make $5,000 more? I'm going to jump ship. <laughs> right. Like, can I get this kind of title? Cause it makes me feel good, even though it doesn't have a good long-term outcome. Sure. And so when I mentor people, I always try to like, let's, let's look a couple of years down the road does this decision make sense for three years, five years, mm-hmm. right? Because so often they chase that $10,000 to go to a company that they hate, right? Instead of just putting in the work where you're already comfortable and getting to where you want to be. Um, and so I'm, I'm still trying. I mean, it's a new job for me. I'm working with a great, uh, a great group of people. Uh, but I think my next step is, you know, after the CFA exam, uh, which, you know, is something I started this is going to sound crazy because it's a three part exam. I started this exam in the winter of 2014 and it is, uh, for those that don't know, you know, it's one of the hardest tests in the world and, and sort of like a, a black belt in finance of sorts, you know, 2000, 3000 pages of material, 30% pass rates at every level. Um, you know, just the creme de la creme in terms of, uh, of talent, knowing what you know about my background, I don't have this crazy calculus mindset. I don't have like, this is hard for me, right? I have to put in work. It's intellectually challenging for me. Um, and, and when I started it in 2014, I passed the first level. I felt really good about myself. And so I said, Hey, why not take the second level right away? And I failed. And that humbled me because I hadn't failed in a long time. Mm-hmm. 2016 comes along and my brother goes missing. 
And so I can't take the test. I'm three months into studying and I can't take it. 2017 comes around and I'm still not ready to take it. 2018 comes around, I take it. <laughs> and I'm, you know, I was able to pass. Now I'm on the level 20, 2019, level three, ready to, to lock it up and I fail again. And so here's somebody that's put in a lot of work and you fail and that's hard and you have to hold yourself accountable. Um, and I did, I didn't get enough done. I didn't get it done. I didn't have all the focus that I needed. Um, 2020 comes along our favorite year and my test yeah. gets canceled twice. <laughs> so here, here we are 2021, Seth, I can't wait to finish that exam. So that's going to be first on my list. And then I think I'd like, um, you know, I'd like to just, just take some time to just be me, man. And, and actually, um, you know, I've been working nonstop since I was 14 years old. I've had a a glorious and awesome trip up the corporate ladder and I just want to get comfortable and good at what it is that I'm doing. And so, mm-hmm. I, you know, when this test passed in, in June, I just want to lock into my role and get really good at it and help my teammate t- teammates and, and really dive all into this. And at the same time, I just want to like dive back into my personal life. It's been a tumultuous five years. You know, I moved to California I didn't know anyone. I worked from home. I traveled 70% of my life. Like it was really hard going from a network where I knew all these people to now, hey, you're on an island by yourself. Good luck. Right. And so I've been fortunate to meet you know people like yourself. Um, and I'd love to meet a lot more of them, man. I'd love to meet a ton more people and get more ingrained in the community. Um, get more, go on more trips with with my nephews and nieces. Um, as you know, I took a 33 day long road trip, um, when the last CFA exam got canceled in October and I went from Yosemite to Tahoe and Mammoth, Crater Lake, Oregon, up to Bend and Portland, and then up to Washington where I did Mount St. Helens, um, and, and, uh, up to Seattle and the Orcas Islands and then down the coastline, Olympic national, like it was the most foundational moment of my life or moments of my life. Um, and, and I felt like my brother was riding shotgun the whole time, man. It was just an incredible moment. I want to do more of that And the work from home environment is going to allow us, um, no, you can't, <laughs> you can't go on 20 mile hikes every day per se, right. but like, <laughs> you know, to be able to live in different places and to be able to travel. Um, and I'm just like the travel that has come from my job has been the most tremendous blessing. Cause I came from a small town. Like I'm able to see different, you know, the way that other people live. I'm able to see all these places. I never thought in a million years I'd be able to do this. I want to do it more, man. I want to get out there. Um, so that's kind of what's a, on on the docket is is actually maybe dialing it back a little bit, um, which which seems weird, but mm-hmm. it's it, it's never been done for me. And I think I'll produce better work because of it, and I think I'll be happier because of it. Man, that sounds <laughs> that sounds incredible. Well, of course, because you're a world traveler yourself, <laughs> <laughs> right? I mean, I hate staying at home, and that's exactly kind of like the lifestyle and and direction I'd like to go as well. So you're exactly right. That's why that sounds so fantastic. Yeah, I'm I'm pumped about it. And I want to read more, man. I love to read. If there was anything I contribute um, a lot of my professional success to, it's just like I love to learn, man. Uh, And there's there's a million articles, a million books and podcasts. 
uh, yours included, um, that I want, <laughs> that I, that I want to consume. Um, and you know, if I was to give any advice to, you know, people throughout their, their careers and, and, and I don't mean early careers, late careers, all careers, or just in life is that you should be consuming and learning information from people all the time. And it is like a getting a PhD in life, man. And the, the, the amount of resources that we have at our disposal, like podcasts like this are, and, and others are just, we've never had this opportunity before in the history of mankind. You can mm-hmm. tap into the, some of the brightest minds you can tap into the up and coming. You can tap into people and niches that you're interested in. I just love it, man. So I'm always listening to books and podcasts, and I just can't wait to you know later this summer, you know, be able to to, to dive into that further. Maybe go to business school because I just I'm a I'm a constant learner, man. And and this is again coming from somebody that didn't have this massively high intellectual bar. Mm-hmm. You know, I had a 21 on my ACT. Right. It's not like I was, you know, some some genius, but I work at it, man. I love to learn. I'm curious. And and I'd love, you know, in the future, I'd love to, to talk further about what what the world's going to look like in the next 10 years. and A lot of these other things that you that you read about. But that that's my you know one big piece of advice. And the other I, and I think it's important um, to maybe tie a bow around this because I get asked this question a lot. Um, you know, by people and they see that you're being successful and like, how do you, how do you do it, man? What, what's the secret? And so there's really th- three areas. One is I think you need this like superiority complex. Like you need to actually feel confident in yourself. Mm-hmm. Right. And so that's the, the first stage that I, which what I would call thinking you're the shit. <laughs> um, but it's not easy to get there. No, of course not. Right. Right. Yeah. That's that's like a developmental mentality, hundred percent. Like, oh, we we live in L.A. the the Mamba mentality, right? Like the Kobe mentality, and people always talk about it. They always like, oh, Mamba mentality. I got that. Whatever bullshit. You have that. You know you you're not Kobe. <laughs> and I'm we, not saying you. I'm not saying you, Tyler. But I'm saying like. The generalist who who says, "Oh, well, I'm going to take the mama mentality." That is a very thought out process to become the mamba. It's a very practical in in process mentality, and it's developmental. You don't know you have it until you have it. But but what's interesting about what you said is you are not Kobe. And that's my second biggest thing about success, like what what drives success, which is an inferiority an inferiority complex. And what inf- I can't even talk too much whiskey <laughs> <laughs> inferiority complex. So people must feel like they're actually not good enough. They have to be humbled that there's something to prove to get a chip on their shoulder. So this is actually opposing the superiority complex, right? Mm-hmm. So these are at counter, you know, this is like this rare balance where like, hey, I have the confidence in myself, but I recognize that other people are actually the shit above me. (laughs) And so there's the more you learn, the more you have to learn. Right. And it opens these windows that you never thought were possible. 
because you just didn't understand the world. So every piece of information that I consume now, everything that I read, I realize how much I don't know. <laughs> mm-hmm. Right. And that's that I'm not Kobe. I'm not going to be Kobe anytime soon. So I better get to work. And the last thing I'll say is it's, it's really like the, the, the third piece that ties it all together is just self-discipline, man. And so it goes back to what I was saying before, like this long-term thinking arbitrage, foregoing short-term gain for long-term, uh, uh, short-term pleasure for long-term gain. Um, and then really the, really the way you do that is building out really solid habits. As you well know, I'm a big fan of atomic habits, the, the, the book by James clear, um, as all of our outcomes are just lagging measures of our habits. So these three, I'm the shit. Well, I'm not really the shit. Other people are the shit <laughs> and the self-discipline I think are what, what are big drivers, um, you, you know, of potential successful outcomes and, and sort of extraordinary that you're looking to uncover in people. Well, let me ask you a follow-up question there. Yeah. Talk to people recently who were hiring others and they're always like, well, I'm looking for aptitude and aptitude being the general, having the general ableness to accomplish something. That's, that's like what aptitude is. And when I hear that, I have immediate contradicting thoughts because I am a reader like yourself and I've read Atomic Habits and it's all about learning, developing habits to eventually have this system to be able to do things without even thinking about it. And then I start thinking about aptitude. Well, aptitude can be learned, can't it? So when you're judging someone for for getting something done or having the ability, the the natural ability to do something, is it a fair judgment to put that on somebody? Well, Thomas Friedman writes about this. I think it's in Thank You for Being Late. Um, I think is the name of the book. But I think moving forward, like it, it matters less about the ability as measured by experience to be able to do a job than it does of your ability to find the resources to be able to learn how to do the job, right? Mm-hmm. And so the successful person, in my opinion, over the next couple decades is not the person that has the technical knowledge or experience because that's going to evolve gangbusters over the next couple you know, couple decades. Yeah. It's do you have the soft skills? Do you know where to go to get the information to be able to execute? And so my opinion is is that aptitude is a part of it. We all like to hire for experience, but I like hiring people for skills, right? Their abilities, not necessarily their experience. Now it's great if you can get all the above, but I would encourage, you know, people that are out there hiring to think about getting outside of their traditional pool. People that come from the same backgrounds as them have worked in the same industries and think about hiring a person that you can teach the basic necessities of the job in in a you know six months or something but they have skills that you could never teach uh, already that they might bring in from other industries maybe it's a teacher trying to transition into a technology role mm-hmm. you know and, and, and you're no secret to this having interviewed lately it's i don't know why we make it so hard on people <laughs> to really reflect those skills right and 
that's not going to, the next 30 years, if you think the code that you learn and the process that you did is going to be the same over five years, over 10 years, no, it's not going to, like, these are all, like, the experience you've had is, is, is less relevant in the world of artificial intelligence and, and um, this exponential change. It is more about your ability to adapt in those soft skills. And, and so I would encourage anyone who's out there hiring to think about getting outside of their pool and hiring people like that. Cause I think you'd be surprised about them. No one would have thought I would be able to sit here in my role today, the day I was hired and do it, but you learn the stuff as you go, you know, you, there's innate skills that people have. So hopefully that kind of answers my, my thoughts on that one. I think it does. And, and I was pretty clear on, on your explanation and, uh, well, <laughs> It's what I wanted to hear as well, so I appreciate that. <laughs> ding, 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 ding. Yeah. No, but yeah. I believe it, man. We hire people at our company, too, that are outside of industry. Uh, I, I just think it's it's so important. Uh, our jobs, um, you know, the experiences that we bring are only – they only give you so much um, – of the initial brownie points and then you just are who you are mm-hmm. <laughs> right so it it is true it's going to be a higher lift to hire a person like that but i do think it's worth it because this person could have superior soft skills they'll be able to adapt they'll be agile um, and i just don't think enough businesses think like that and, and they're missing out on a lot of talent become because of it because you need three ex- years experience in this or that I, I i just think it's 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 trash um you could get the, again, the combination of the both—that's the, tri, the trifecta. But we, you know, we hired somebody from outside of interest, industry, and I love it because she questions the why. Why do you guys do it this way? She never worked in the finance industry. Like that's powerful. Every other person that walks in the door is like, "Oh, this is why it's always been done this way." Mm-hmm. You know. So, um, well, it, it's back to what we said earlier uh, when we first started talking. It's it's. Very important to have a diverse perspective in to what you are trying to accomplish because there are different ways of thinking about it that you may not know. But oftentimes that gets a little derailed because when there is money involved and there's a bottom line, you need to have facts. You need to have hardcore confirmation on your ideas and the things that you're doing because there's money involved. And when there's money involved, it changes things. So it, it takes a lot to have a team culture, a company culture to be able to accept diverse thinking and like put that into practice. Yeah. It's, it is really hard because there is career risk involved. You, you know, at a big hire, it's going to cost you money to hire somebody that, you know, may not like you have to sign off and vouch for. One other thing I'll say about the, the, the culture of it is like, I'm a big encourager of a failure culture. <laughs> and what I mean by that is you need to be able to encourage your people to try things and fail. And it's okay if you ever want to innovate. Right. Mm-hmm. Because if you get into a culture where, everyone has their marching orders and they're afraid of stepping out of line because they're going to get judged or they're going to get in trouble. You're not going to be a firm. That's it. That's going to be driving innovation and, and, and uh, on the cutting edge. So, you know, uh, you know, again, as you think about who do you want to hire, I think about 
thinking of these diverse perspectives and this sort of failure mindset where they come in and they say, why again, why do you do this? I don't, I don't understand why the industry doesn't. Maybe there's a good reason, but maybe there's not. And there's a way to innovate. <laughs> mm-hmm. And so I'm a big believer in these sort of failure cultures in, in, in the sense that you try and fail in, in order to innovate. And just playing devil's advocate here, what what if there's a company who has been doing what they've been doing forever and they're not, they don't want to innovate? You, you shouldn't change for the sake of change, right? There should always be a reason why you change. If it's working, then continue to do it. But you'll find this uh, on my LinkedIn. It, it, it's that the people that, um, you know, the ones that, that tend to disrupt, uh, they tend to be in industries that don't see it coming. Right. And so there's a lot of industries out there that thought they had it good, man. And you look around and now you have five companies that are seemingly taking over the world, mm-hmm. you know, and, and you're getting automotives disrupted by technology companies. You're getting, uh, retail companies and these strong brands disrupted by, uh, online e-marketplace and, and and they all thought they had it good man and and so part of it is yeah you can you know if it's working for you there's no reason to change for change sake but you should always be watching your back in terms of in, innovation because there's somebody gunning for you if the margins are good the business is good and no one's paying attention to it well, well that would surprise me uh, there's too many smart people out there to, to recognize that there are there's a great business that they don't want to to take over or even emulate so there's always competition coming and if you're not innovating um you know you're atrophying i just think you need to keep keep that mindset now not that you need to you know have a google model where everything is an experiment but you should always be thinking about what's next and uh i'm not sure that all businesses are really thinking about that and that's how do i frame this like It's important to note that you're working with a company that appreciates innovation and is looking to to make a change in the industry. Is that would you say that's correct? Absolutely, yeah. And that's why I'm here. You know, and I I loved my prior job, and I'm leaving for the opportunity, or I've left for the opportunity to unleash that innovation. I don't know what it looks like. And these are hard problems to solve. We don't have it all figured out. But my opinion, Seth, is that you get the right people in a room with an innovative culture and they'll they'll figure it out. If anything, they might change the you know, the process. They might change the industry. They might change the world because yeah. they don't have it all figured out. And I just I just love that. Um, you know, so. And, and I agree with you, too. I mean, just look at different ways you can purchase things or things that are purchasable are being grouped and for for those who aren't technically sound or or who know these things like like an nft right i don't even know what that stands for but (laughs) i I spent a lot of time the last couple weeks on nfts i don't know if you and i have personally talked about this not yet until now (laughs) but it's like there's an nft there's cryptocurrency these are innovative changes that have happened that can impact your financials, that can impact your life, that if you have been status quo about your how you go about your financials, you may not be even interested in 
these types of currencies, these types of exchanges, these types of these type of, of assets. So, and we're getting pretty technical here. So this is funny though, because just think this is so much easier to either say this is stupid or this is ridiculous than it is to say this is a force that's to be reckoned with. I will. I'll personally say I didn't. I didn't give cryptocurrency the attention that it's now deserved um because i come from that traditional mindset i read books with models (laughs) the world is supposed to make sense you're telling me that some fictional thing on a fictional platform is so now all of a sudden worth some fictional dollar amount it's hard for me to understand you know and and so it's easier to just say as, as somebody that you know seemingly you know, these businesses have it all figured out to say that, no, that's stupid. That's a passing fad. We all know that that now today is not the case. Cryptocurrencies have persisted. Um, I'm, I've watched videos of um, L Roker and Katie. Uh, I can't think of her name, but good morning America talking about the internet. I don't know if you've seen these, but they're like, wow, this new thing called the internet. It's pretty crazy. You know, like, <laughs> It's laughable at those times. I'm yeah. sure it was laughable when Jeff Bezos started a online book com- company to, to, to basically serve as an online library. Um, but that's the thing is that NFTs are this next wave of what that's going to look like. And, th- you know, the biggest thing uh, that I, I see with NFTs, which stands for non-fungible tokens, is the ability for artists to be able to share what they create to people that want to consume it and get paid every time it changes hands. And what they also are able to do is if, you know, let's say we look at a piece of artwork from Van Gogh, I could create my own Van Gogh copy, right? And there would be no way to maybe tell the difference between one or the other, but the blockchain actually allows you to tell who actually owns it. There's no arguing with the blockchain. They know exactly who owns it, what it changes hands. And so I think about the future of media and music where you have to, you know, users of, or um, producers and, and artists have to go through Spotify and Apple, but now they can go direct to their people and sell their music or artists can go direct to their people and they can change hands. Or you, you as a podcaster can tokenize yourself and, and build equity through on through the blockchain. These are massive tailwinds that aren't going away, you know. And 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 so to just laugh it off is like this is ridiculous. Why would you want a virtual a virtual asset? Why do I want a virtual picture on my wall? Well, I had this conversation with my nephew today, um, who I I put on a project that he had to go read about NFTs, ironically, and he's a video gamer. And he was like, you know what I can see? It's like I make some sweet body armor. I'm the only one in the world that has this body armor. And I put it on the blockchain and I can sell this body armor to somebody else that's interested in it. Like there's real life uses. It's not going away. If you've watched Ready Player One, have you seen it? I have, yeah. All right, so Ready Player One. The other the other big thing that they talk about with, with uh, NFTs is, well, why the hell would I want it online when I, I could have it in person? Well, we've watched Ready Player One. Does this dude care about what his in-person experience looks like? No, he lives in a shack. He lives in a trailer. Like, his whole world is online. So your ability to bring your virtual possessions online and go from virtual world to virtual world and and brag and say, this is what I own, is going to be powerful. It's not going away. 
Now, it might not happen today, tomorrow, three years, four years, and it might be in a bubble you know, today, but this technology is, per, is pervasive. And so those firms that just laugh it off, you know, I think they're, they're going to be like, how do I get involved in this five years too late? <laughs> and that always seems to be the case, right? And, it, and in some cases, it should. I mean, if you have a good thing going, it doesn't mean you have to jump at every, every shiny light. Um, but what it does mean is you just need to be aware of what's out there, like, you know, Porter's five forces type stuff. Like, where are the competitors coming from? Like, what is it going to look like? I'm just so, I mean, we could talk about this this for hours. I'm just so excited about how quickly the world is going to evolve. And that's going to unlock a ton of opportunities for people to, that are either going to choose to be displaced because they cho- choose not to evolve and they choose not to build a skill set or they're going to flourish and there's going to be generational wealth created and you're going to be on the ground floor of it because you took the time to do the work and the reading and you identified the trend before it happened. With crypto, there are all these first generation millionaires that were created out of seemingly a technology that everyone laughed at. Yeah. And what's also interesting is 80% of millionaires are first generation. And the reason is, is they're probably doing a lot of the stuff that I'm talking about. They're, they're trying stuff that has never happened before. Um, so th- that stuff gets me fired up, man. I, I just love it. <laughs> well, let's, let's hit on that. Let's hit on things that get you fired up and what, you, what people can do or specific things people can read or get into to, uh, to become more aware. Like what do you yep. have certain uh, – materials or not materials geez, uh books or um online newsletters that you so that you highly recommend and i've shared this with you my biggest source of intellectual capital is twitter mm-hmm. i love twitter um i just think it is it allows you to dive in and hear directly from the stars of whatever niche you want to get into right <laughs> right you want to hear about EV and rockets, guess what? Elon Musk tw- tweets all the time. <laughs> yeah. You know what I'm saying? In my world called FinTwit, I get to hear from the best minds in the business, dropping research reports, talking about what's happening in the markets on a real-time basis. It's the most fantastic resource. I get if you've never been on it, it seems like a bit of a hurdle. But if I could, like, if I had a gun to my head and I had to decide which piece of social media to keep, it's Twitter 10 times over because I learn so much. I'm stop on social media for the CFA exam. That doesn't count Twitter. (laughs) Okay. So I start there, right. And I have a curated list of people that I follow that I just really value what they, what they post. Um, and I get so much value. And from there I'm bookmarking things. Those bookmarks lead into white papers. They lead into videos like because if you think about it, Seth, we went from a world where it was like, go read this book. And then it was, all right, well, the book is kind of long. <laughs> I don't know if I want to do the book, um, you know, but let's do a video on YouTube. And then it was a podcast, and then it now is a tweet. And so what the tweet does is it tells you, like, what's the most interesting part of the story? And if I'm interested in that story, then we'll have to work our way back upwards, right? right, towards the book or whatever. And so I wish I actually had done more podcasts and listened to more podcasts um, you know, versus books, because I find that they're so salient and they get to a point and it's topical and you you can get in and get out. 
But what I do still do, because um, I think it's great for conversations, is I read a lot of books or I listen to a lot of books. Uh, so I try to listen to one book every two weeks. Last week or last year, I hit 26 books on the head. That is exactly what I was looking to do. Um, and I, and this is going to sound way too nerdy, but I, and, and the people from that 45 gym will laugh at me, but I listen to them while I work out and I listen to them at almost 2.0 speed, like chipmunks. Mm-hmm. And so what it allows me to do is I can finish books like that, right? I'm constantly consuming the information when I'm in the car on the way there, it might be a 12 minute drive, but because it's 2.0, it's 24 minutes. And then I'm on my way back. It's another 24 minutes. Now I've done 48 minutes of reading just on my drive to the gym, right? And so it allows me to consume a lot of information. So I, I listen to a lot of books. Um, and so between Twitter, um, investment reading, and, and sort of diving into the research papers, that uh, I don't necessarily recommend for everyone, but it is, is, is relevant for my space, um, and, and, the, and books, uh, audio books, I, I you know, have a lot that I can consume. Um, and then podcasts, and, you know, the obvious ones are obvious for a reason. Tim Ferriss... Joe Rogan, I mean, they they are able to tap into some of the most amazing guests. Um, you turned me on to Clubhouse. That's an area that that you know we're exploring pretty rapidly. You get on there and and you're hearing from you know the you know people from all over the place, and and it lowers the playing or lowers the lowers the bar to allow um, you know somebody like you and I could be on there talking about on Clubhouse, and and, and so it's a, it's a forum for engaging conversation. It'll be interesting to see how that one evolves. So those are some of the the areas that I'm looking at, um, in terms of like some of the key people I've uh, maybe follow, like Naval Ravikant is somebody who's, I would call a modern day philosopher. Okay. Um, and, and those that know him probably, you know, are like, Oh yeah, I love Naval. Like if, so if you can follow Naval, I would say at Naval on, on Twitter, he's on clubhouse often, um, just an, an insanely bright individual and somebody that really helped me try to level set with what success really looks like. And is it just monetary success? Is it paying the bills? Is it status or is it happiness? And I'm a big believer that the more that our society can rotate towards a vision of success being happiness, the better we all are. <laughs> yeah. Right. Um, and he also, taught me about not desiring too many things. So he has this quote that desire is a contract with yourself to not be happy until you get what you want. And so what that means is like, you're constantly unhappy if you're chasing a million desires, right? Yeah. And so what you do is you you say like, these are the things I really desire, the one, two or three things. And you put all your energy into that. You don't spread yourself thin and say, oh, well, I'm worthless until I pass the CFA exam, <laughs> right? And, and so that, 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 you know, that's interesting, interesting to me. Um, so Naval, Naval is one, obviously, as I mentioned, with, with Tim Ferriss, Joe Rogan, Twitter. Um, and then in terms of books, man, oh, I could talk books with you all day. Uh, and, and so, um, you know, I think about my favorite books. We talked about Atomic Habits. There's a book called Deep Work that I really appreciate which is about like how to stay productive in an age that's crazy distractive, distracting. Um, you know, if you think about it, like how many of you have you know, recently like said, I'm not going to look at my phone for 30 minutes. I'm going to lock in on a task. It's hard. 
It's very hard. Right? But there's a competitive advantage to those that can figure that out. And his opinion is that there's really only three or four hours of deep work that we're actually capable of. So schedule out your deep work. And, and, and it's a really interesting book. Um, and so as I think about like self-help books, I would think Atomic Habits, um, Deep Work, The Power of Vulnerability, Brianne Brown, listen to it on audio. Our conversation has hit on a lot of finer points. Uh, she's a shame researcher. Um, and that doesn't sound very fun, but she's hilarious. It's like a stand-up comedian, but she talks about like the power, legitimately the power of vulnerability, um, w which is, which is very interesting. Um, this book range, I don't know if you've read range. It was, uh, yeah, I'm in the middle of it right now. It was ironically, uh, recommended to me last week. Yeah. And so it's about a world where should you be a generalist or you should be a specialist? goes to our conversation earlier in a world that's adapting so quickly. It's about the skills, man. It's not about like honing in. Do you want to be Tiger Woods and your dad has you on the golf course 500 million hours of the day? Or are you going to be uh, Roger Federer where you play a bunch of sports and it just so happens that tennis is the one you're good at? Their research would argue that you should do the latter. And that's, that's so funny because I was sharing my life experiences with this person and she's like, oh, my God, have you ever this read is so Range? This is and, she's, you. and I was like, no. She's like, I feel like you would love it because it definitely, like you said, it describes who you are. And it's clear that there is not just this one thing that you do, but you do everything pr very, very well. And you should. You should read it. And I was like, "Well, it's flattering." Yeah, yeah you, just, you just need to hang this out man. with that person more. I know, I know, but but it's really true. I mean, I, it goes exactly to what we were talking about. It's a great book that describes that. Um, I've been getting more into history, which I always was. I look at history and I'm like, "Eh, boring." Tell me about the next twenty years. But I've, for whatever reason, I'm beginning to. You know, they say history always repeats, and you start to like look at some of the more successful people in history and the conquerors and like um, the way that societies have crumbled and why they've crumbled. And you look at today's world and you see the income inequality and you see like the animosity between groups and you're, you know, it just made me interested in reading more about history. So there's a, f a few books. Um, Americana is a great book about the history of American capitalism and business uh, dating back 400 years. It's this tremendous book. Um, many have read Sapiens, uh, but the history of mankind dating back to Neanderthals and Homo sapiens. Wow. Uh, what a tremendous book. And it uh, just gives a good, uh, you know, his his view on, on, on the history of mankind. And then there was a book, in, you know, if you're more into the investment realm, called it Red Notice, which is one of my favorites. It's actually becoming a Netflix movie, um, which I'm pumped for. And I think there's some big name actors. I can't remember who, who they are, but uh, is a book about uh, when Russia's um, markets went public and basically eight oligarchs bought them all up. Really? And, um, you know, this is modern day age. And this gentleman, Bill Browder, um, you know, he was one of the first hedge funds that ended up in Russia, and he made a lot of money for American investors. And uh, Mr. Vladimir Putin did not like that, and he ends up um, murdering his um, lawyer. And this is this is not 1950. <laughs> this is present day times, and 
and you'll appreciate this, he had an Interpol red notice, meaning he wasn't allowed to fly from country to country. <laughs> <laughs> we'll save that story for, for another time. Yes, but, we will. <laughs> um, it, it, just a tremendous book about like what it really takes to invest in these emerging markets and what Russia really looks like. And, and ultimately that led to a John McCain-sponsored bill called the Maglitsky Act that was about the sanctions on Russia, everything pertaining to, to, to what's written in the book. Uh, so history of it in its own right. In terms of the future, I read a book called Hacking Darwin, which got my mind in some weird spots, but it's about the future of genetic engineering and what's going to happen now that we've mapped out the, the human genome. And the like the, the one way I can describe it to make it, to make it interesting um, is his take is that Babies will made, be made all in test tubes, and it'll be irresponsible for people to be conceiving through traditional notions because uh, you'll have the ability to basically root out any autoimmune diseases or any you know potential Down syndrome and things from your DNA, and and and, and so this question about the morality of DNA <laughs> selection and what that might look like in a society where. Maybe the haves have the money to modify their DNA. The have-nots in you know smaller countries and emerging countries do not. Does it widen the gap? Does it widen the gap in America? Super, super interesting. Wow. Um, a lot, a lot of the the stuff that I think about in, in terms of the future are driven by podcasts. So you can get a lot of you know these one, two-hour things that are, that are podcasts. And then in terms of biographies, um, David Goggins. Are you familiar with Davis? <laughs> I feel like you gotta you have to listen to that one. Oh yeah, you gotta. I love listening to a lot of books. Ooh. That's one where uh, Goggins. Um, you know, here's another situation. Extraordinary. Here's a dude just like anyone else. That's overweight. That's down on himself, but has all the the, the tools inside of himself that he doesn't actually realize until t you know present date and, and you see the struggle and everything that he went to now this guy's got a, another uh, uh, you know another layer to him that none of <laughs> that a lot of us have yeah um but i appreciate goggins man I, when i'm when things are when i'm really struggling i think about this dude because he's like humans normally quit at 40 percent of their potential capacity and i'm thinking like oh, i'm on this 25th push-up you know, our 25th pull-up, if I could do that. Um, and I'm like, this dude did like 8,000 pull-ups and damn near all the skin off of his hands and broke the world pull-up record. And out here I'm complaining about this. And so he does a good job of putting life into perspective for me. Uh, as you know, you know, having, having listened to him. Uh, there's a book called Educated, which has been on a New York Times bestseller list for a number of years. Um, Tara, um, Tara Westover. Uh, she's a uh, either Idaho or Utah-born person that was never registered with the government. Her uh, father was a conspiracy theorist, thought the government was out to get them. And so she was never registered. She never went to school. She ends up going on um, you know, to Oxford and Harvard and just watching and, or listening to her story going from you know, a farmer's girl that had to sneak into the barn to be able to study to get past her ACT, which was higher than mine. Never went to <laughs> traditional schooling. <laughs> you know, I love that story, man. I yeah. just, it's such a remarkable story. And, and one that I think, again, like that's the stuff you're trying to tap into on these, these podcasts. Like that's extraordinary to me. It's, it's tremendous. 
And then uh, Hillbilly LG is the other one I would say, which is, uh, have you read that book? Not yet, no. I've heard of it, though. Yeah, so he, you know, this is a gentleman who grew up in Appalachia and, you know, again, low socioeconomic status, rough rough growing up, and it goes on to, to be a, a well-known Yale lawyer. And he does a good job of um, helping people understand why people feel the way that they do in today's economy. And it's very important because I think there's such a divide in the country right now, right? And the problem is, is that if you were born one way, you can't see it the other way, <laughs> you know? And, and so like this, this gap in, in both the, the financial sense and the ideological sense is mm -hmm. widening. And he does a good job of saying like, understand why the coal miner in West Virginia feels like the world isn't taking care of him. Right. And walks through, you know, his vantage point of what that looks like. And it's, it's something that's really important. And, and, and I've had the experience of being poor. I've had the experience of being wealthy. I've lived in liberal California. I lived in conservative Texas, <laughs> you know, I lived in the Midwest. And, and so I like one of the biggest, um, benefits I have is just the benefit of perspective and seeing this. And, and I think he brings that to life as well of, of having gone from, um, you know, the Appalachian town all the way up to, to, um, you know, Yale law. So lots to, lots to chew on, man. I could talk books all day. They are literally the driver of most of my, you know, my excitement about the world. Most of my understanding, if you're not learning about things i think you're falling behind and you don't you shouldn't just stop once you get that <laughs> once you get that college degree or high school degree and just assume that your job is done here <laughs> yeah you know you need to you need to be pressing forward so well i love uh, how, how you're vigorous about about diving into books and diving into new, more information and learning and and just staying persistent about that it's it's important to me, man. And it's, it's good for my job too. If you're in sales, your person that's in sales, there's no greater way to talk to a client than to say, Hey, have you read this new book? I had one client of mine, um, who knows I love books. I ran into him at an event and he said, Hey Tyler, you need to re read this book. Why we sleep. He's like, it's changed my life. Now I read the book. I'll save the punchline. You need to sleep more. <laughs> but it's a long book, but then I'm like, man, if I don't sleep, I'm going to die. <laughs> like, but, but like the conversations when I walk into the meetings and, and like the, you know, these conversations take you in a million different directions. If you have a book for every angle, you're like, you should read this. It feels like a personal sale to them. And it is ultimately you're providing a resource to them that they didn't otherwise have that, that, you know, that that's personal. And for a lot of reasons, it helps with my job. It helps, um, for my view of the world. It is the modern day way of to go to school, man. And there's so much free information out there. It's just, that's another area I think that gets massively disruptive is, is the education world because it's all on there. It's all out there. You yeah. want to learn about something? You want to become a world-class chef? Get on YouTube. You know, my nephew, um, uh, Keaton, he learned, he taught himself how to play the piano off YouTube. My niece taught herself how to play the guitar on YouTube. Like it, it's a, changed landscape um, and, and so we just need to be taking advantage of it and i i like something you said earlier that you listen to books on two times the speed because a lot of people will will find a platform and they'll only do it that way like reading a book 
well, the word reading is taking something in and literally reading it, but you listen to books and you still feel that there's value, if not more, if not more value, you know. And you've said this before, like you said, you're not a great reader, right? Yeah, yeah, I yeah. wish I was a better reader. Right, and so maybe vid- right, the audio might be a better format, video might be a better format. I I'll like s- to consume it in all sorts of mediums. It really mm-hmm. just depends. But if I can get the same nugget in a quarter of the time, I'm too busy not to do that. <laughs> I'll never forget listening to Never Split the Difference by Chris Voss. Oh, yeah. And just feeling like I was in it more so than I've ever been like reading a book uh, or, or like watching a YouTube video. I was just like, holy cow. I, I'm i like in this. I get this concept. I literally feel like I can go out and be the head negotiator for the FBI <laughs> just because yeah. of the way that that listening to that book was for me. And a lot of times listening to a book, you, you will get the author saying what they're writing the way they meant for it to be read. Right. And the tone inflection, all yeah. of it. Yeah. It's pretty cool. I'd actually, I mean, that might be my next foray is I'd actually like, and maybe this will be a good, good place to wrap up is I would actually like to write a book someday. Like I'd actually like to write a book about, um, my experiences to date, you know, and, and, and a lot of the things that we talked about here today and it's going to have a good ending. <laughs> yeah. You know, and so we fast forward, you know, here we are, uh, like I said, five year anniversary in just a couple hours of, you know, my brother going missing. I feel like there's a lot of lessons from having a lost brother that you know, would be worthwhile to share. And chief among them is, you know, um, you know, the, the scenario with my mom where she is sober as a whistle for four years mm-hmm. <laughs> because of what happened with my brother. And the story is great. We have the awesome relationship. And I talk every week, and these stories can have good endings. And I feel like, you know, the draw is the drama, <laughs> mm-hmm. right? But the lesson is the positivity. And, you know, there there is some positivity that, that that comes out of this. And I, you know, I can't, there's a lot of stories still to be written, but I, I would actually like to write a book at some point. I think it would be fantastic. Again, like, I'm just like everyone else, <laughs> extraordinary. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I've had some of those, you know, experiences that are outside of the normal course 100%. Uh, of what people have done. And I think both, you know, make for a good story. And when you when you write about it, I want to listen to it. <laughs> Maybe I won't even write it. <laughs> yeah, because one of the things I'm not good at is spelling. Um, you know, so uh, I guess you know, I guess it might make sense to just record it in this format. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, uh, I want to. I, I I think you're right. This is a good place to wrap it up. Um, but there's always the last question that I ask everybody, and how do you think how do you think someone should find their extraordinary i think it's trial and error it's sort of like the conversation we talked about with range i think that they should give themselves a diverse perspective right try different things see what they're good at um you know, I don't think that there's really any other way. Like if you go, like, just think about this. If in the most crazy of answers, you could say, here's a, 
a kid grows up, he knows exactly what he wants to do. <laughs> he does it all the time and he becomes great. And that happens sometimes. It mm-hmm. happens with like uh, Bill Gates. He had the only computer available at the school and basically one of the only ones in the country. He loved it. He crushed computers. <laughs> yeah. That's not normal, right? That's, that's, in a sense, luck. He was at the right place, right time. And so to really truly find extraordinary, in my opinion, you have to have um, – you have to be out there experiencing things, man. You have to, you have to get in the weeds. Like you said, you have to be, you know, being a warrior doesn't come during peacetime. Like you have to go through some wars. Mm -hmm. And, and so I do think, um, yeah, the best way that I could say to do it is just like to go out there, be vulnerable, try things, recognize that the law of numbers is going to say some bad stuff is going to happen to you. And what I've learned, the bigger your network, the more tragedy is going to strike. Because you're around people, you're you're you know a lot of people. If you knew one person, odds are that person probably isn't gonna have anything crazy to happen. If you know twenty five hundred people, you're gonna want to run into some crazy stuff. And so, it's not getting derailed by that. It's using that as fuel, you know. And and so I I do think that that you know diverse perspectives, trying things out, not getting derailed. Like I said earlier, having confidence in yourself, recognizing you're not the shit, continuing to grow, being self-disciplined, like that's the stuff that makes you extraordinary. And and what other skill is tact, right? And like I said in the roundtable discussion, knowing when is the right time to say the right thing, right? Don't feel like you have to know it all. Like sit back, let the world come to you. Mm-hmm. And then strike, man, and strike with conviction. And, and I think that that's how you find the extraordinary. Awesome. Love it. All right. Well, really quick, how can people get in touch with you or find you? Yeah. So, um, Instagram is one where I'm disappeared from, uh, but I will be back after this exam, uh, which is, I believe just me TV, um, Twitter, which is an area that I repost and retweet the things I'm most interested in. I need to do more by way of actually sharing my own stuff, which is just me TV five. My brother has a Facebook group um, uh, called find Mike Van Zant. That's, that's uh, easy to find. And he also did a documentary on the discovery channel um, called disappeared. And it's part of their disappeared series. Um, and, and so you can find that in their latest season uh, where they chronicle, you know, my brother, my brother's disappearance. And so there's a lot of different ways to kind of tap into either that story specifically or, or more broadly to my, my thoughts and add me on LinkedIn. If I can um, expand this network, man, we can grow this village and, and help each other out. Appreciate that. Well, Tyler, thanks for being on the show. All right. My pleasure. Awesome. Thanks.